Support for WMU comes from PenFed Credit Union. PenFed's got great rates for those in uniform and those who are not. More at PenFed.org. Membership is required to receive any advertised product. Insured by NCUA. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and today, May 22nd, is National Maritime Day. If you're not sure what that means, stay tuned. We'll have stories of navigation on the high seas and beyond from X-1, Men at Sea, Fibber McGee and Molly, and, in a little bit of a stretch, Pride of the Marines from the Lux Radio Theater. Plus Dragnet, Gunsmoke, and we'll celebrate the birthday of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle by hearing from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Really, there's lots in store, so relax. Put aside any worries that troubled you last week. Don't even think about what might come up to vex you beginning tomorrow. And instead, let your imagination take you down to the sea in ships, as the Bible says, here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. There are several things that made America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator fabulous, and one of them in a time when relationships between men and women were defined a little differently was the fact that women apparently found him irresistible. It's a trait that comes in handy in an adventure called The Four's a Crowd Matter from July 29, 1962, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, this is Dennis Taylor, Star Mutual Insurance Company here in Colorado Springs. Yes, Mr. Taylor. An important client of ours, Mr. Dollar. His name is Melvin Lockerty. Yes? Well, he's spending the summer at one of our nearby guest ranches. And he's having some visitors for a week or so. He's invited them. They'll be his guests. So? A dollar, Mr. Lockerty believes that given half a chance, one of them will try to murder him. Murder him? So if you're free, if you can find the time to come out here... Mr. Taylor, I'm on my way. The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Star Mutual Insurance Company, Colorado Springs office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Fours a Crowd matter. Expense account item one. A hundred and forty-six twenty for a cab to Bradley Field, a plane to New York, and a jet the rest of the way to Denver. A mile-high city in the middle of the most beautiful mountain country I know of. And the home of radio station KLZ. 
Item two, 7.30 for a ferry plane to Colorado Springs. Taylor was there to meet me. He's a short, stocky, gray-haired man of about 50 who takes himself a bit too seriously in spite of the funny way his glasses keep slipping down his pudgy little nose. I have one of my own cars right over there, Mr. Dollar. If you will drive me back to my office, it's yours for as long as you're here. Good enough, Mr. Taylor. Now, about this man, uh, Lockerty, did you say? Uh, yes, Melvin Lockerty. And he's convinced, Mr. Dollar, that one of these relatives coming to see him wants to murder him. Relatives? Hmm? The only surviving ones he has. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, <clears throat> here we are. Oh, all right. You see, they're the children of his younger brother, Henry, who died a few weeks ago at the age of 71. Oh, I see. Now, how old is he? Uh, well, according to his policy, 74. Now, uh, <clears throat> I'll point the way to go. Right. And, uh... His beneficiaries? Uh, these three who are coming here. Mm-hmm. When? Uh, they're due today. So you'd best get over to the no-name ranch where he's staying just as quickly as possible. Uh, turn here, please. All right. Uh, tell me, uh, how much do you know about these relatives, these heirs of his? Not very much, I'm afraid, outside of their names. Are they crooks or something that he's so scared of them? <laughs> Any crook in that family, it's Lockerty himself. How do you mean? Well, now, how do you think he ever got hold of enough money to afford nearly a half million worth of insurance? <laughs> I'm sure I don't know. Well, then let me tell you. By hornswoggling his brother Henry out of some mining properties over near Cripple Creek. That's how. Oh? Properties that Henry spent a whole lifetime developing to the point where they finally began to uh, pay off. I see. He tricked his brother out of them and then sold them and kept the money himself. A rotten thing to do, Mr. Dollar. And Henry had been a very close friend of mine. This Lockerty sounds like a nice fellow. He's a crook of the first water. And if you ask me, Lockerty was completely responsible for his brother's death. You see, it was by his own hand. And you want me to protect a man like that? I know, I know. But with the company, it's purely a matter of dollars and cents. Personally, I don't care what happens to him. You really hold a grudge against him, don't you? No, 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 no. I did not say that. You didn't need to. This branch was on a broad, level spot packed out of the side of a mountain, part of the Rampart Range, about a half mile up from Highway 24. It consisted of about a dozen neat, modern, comfortable cabins, and from the front window of mine, I had a view of not only pikes, but several other peaks that hemmed in colorful Ute Pass. All very beautiful. Yes? Oh, hi. Dollar. My name's Lockerty. Taking you long enough to get here. Why haven't you been to see me? Well, uh... I want one thing understood, Dollar, right from the beginning. When these relatives of mine get here... They haven't arrived yet? Well, I'm still alive, ain't I? Now, I don't want them to know what you're here for, you understand? Yes, but Mr. Lockerty... Now, look, you look and listen. I invited them up to spend a week with me to try and make peace with them. After all, they're the only relatives I got. Uh, So I understand. And uh, to try to find out once and for all which one of them is out to get me. To get you. Why? Why? Because their father, just before he died, he made one of them promise to get even with me for, uh, for, uh, well, I, uh, I, I sort of done him out of some money once. Your own brother, wasn't it? Yes, my own brother. What of it? What difference does that make? Well, how do you know about that promise? Because he told me before he died. Mm-hmm. And which one of the three do you suspect? Well, how should I know? I haven't even seen them, not for years. But now I've been getting letters. Telling me my time is about up. Threatening letters? Yes. I hope you've kept them. No, I haven't. But I'm worried. So that's the reason I've called him here for a showdown. I, I mean to, to, 
to patch it up or, or something. Mm-hmm. Here they are now. Wait a minute, Mr. Lockery. Are you trying to tell me that that those three who just got out of that car... Yes. ...that one of them might be plotting to murder you? Yes, yes, yes. Ooh, somebody is crazy. sneaked out the back door of my cabin, I stood there by the window and looked long and carefully at the new arrivals while they pulled their luggage out of the car there in front of the ranch office. And all I can tell you is that it was a pleasure. The one who'd been driving was... 26 or 7, tall, blonde, and beautiful. Another, perhaps a couple of years younger, was a brunette, a real doll with a mischievous sparkle in her eyes. As for the third, well, I won't even try. Beyond saying that in spite of her heavy horn-rimmed glasses, a plain cotton dress, and hair done up in a bun, she was one of the loveliest, most naturally beautiful girls I've ever seen. So, as, uh, <clears throat> as casually as possible, I walked out of my cabin and sauntered over to them. Well, hello. We're here. I'm Kitty Lockerty. Uh, we all met in Colorado Springs, and Marion had her car, so that's why we all got here together. Well, hi. I, I'm Johnny Dollar. Dollar? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought the manager's name was... Uh, what did you say it was, Thecla? Oh, Mr. Croy McClary or something. Who cares now? Hi, Johnny. Thecla? Mm-hmm. Like it? Unusual name. Oh, I'm an unusual girl, Johnny. <laughs> yes, I can see you that. Paddle your own canoe, Thecla. I saw him first. So what, darling? Mm-hmm. So you can just... Oh, now stop it, you two. Is the manager about, Mr. Dollar? Uh, it's Johnny. Hmm? And I'm Marion. Marion Lockerty. Hi. And the answer's no. He drove into Manitou Springs right after I got here. But, uh, if I can be of any help... Would you, Johnny? Cut it, I think we're supposed to have cabins 8, 9, and 10, Johnny. At least that's what Uncle Melvin said on the phone. Well, why don't we see if they're open? Here, let me grab some of this luggage. <laughs> Now, of course, you never can tell. After getting them settled in their respective cabins and calling attention to the square dance posted for that evening, I went back to my own cabin and simply waited, watching. A while later, the three of them got together and went over to Mr. Lockerty's cabin. Then, even with his door closed, I could hear him shouting at them. And finally, the girls went back to their own cabins separately and not speaking to each other. Then I dropped in on Lockerty. Crazy. Dollar, suppose one of them saw you come in here. What were all the fireworks about, Mr. Lockerty? I was nice to them, Dollar. I said I'd pay all the bills and give them anything they want up here. And then I told them. Yeah? I told them that I knew one of them was after me. What'd they say to that? What do you think? They acted like they never heard of such a thing. But I knew better, Dollar. I knew better. I know that Harry, before he died, made one of them promise to kill me. Yes, but which one? Well, how should I know? I told you I don't know, but look at him. That peckler, the blonde one. Ah, quite a dish. He's all wrapped up in herself and nobody else. Don't care about nobody else. You think she wouldn't kill me? Huh? Because of promise and to get her share of the money in addition? Do you think she would? And so would Catherine. Kitty, that black-haired one. Hot-tempered little minx with those dark, shifty eyes. 
The way she tried to laugh it off when I said I was wise. So. Hmm. And uh, how about Marion, the one with the glasses? Yeah, sure. The quiet one, but smart. Just don't you forget that old saying, Dollar, that still waters run deep. Mm. Anyhow, I, I told him. You told him just exactly what, Mr. Lundy? That whichever one thinks she's going to kill me, she won't get away with it. So she'd better admit it, that's what. Don't you see, Dollar? I can't sleep. I can't rest. This thing is driving me crazy. That's the understatement of the week. No. What? Well, what? Look, if it's rest you want, Mr. Lockerty, I see by the bulletin board that there's a barn dance tonight, so at least you can get some sleep while that's going on. Uh, if they go to it. A... I'll try to see that they do. Uh, okay, but, 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 but don't you worry. I'll, I'll be sleeping with a gun at my side. You carry a gun? I always do. No. Well, if you ask me, Mr. Lockerty. Well, yeah, well, if I ask you what? <sighs> Nothing. Forget it. For my money, this selfish, twisted little old man was out of his mind, was far more dangerous than any of the girls. And yet, if one of them had made a promise to kill him, well, there was only one way to find out, or at least to try. I sashayed on over to the barn dance. hoedown there in the barn that night was quite an affair. Far more than just the guest population of the ranch were there. And by lying mightily about my ability as a square dancer, I'd persuaded all three of the girls to be present. Then, although it took a bit of an egling, Kitty and Thekla were having a high old time with some of the local boys. I managed to get them aside. Separately, of course, for a little walk in the clean, cool mountain air. I know, Johnny. I, I guess the whole ranch must have heard him ranting and raving at us, there in his cabin. Why, Tetra? Oh, he has the silly notion that one of us promised to Daddy to kill him for something that happened once. But did you? One of you? Well, I know I didn't. But I'll tell you this, darling. That if I had, I would have done it. I mean, after what he did to Daddy. Oh, and what's he living for, anyhow? I mean, well, just think how nice it'll be when he leaves us all his nice money, hmm? Yes. Mm -hmm. Ooh, it's getting chilly out here, darling. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, should we go back in and dance some more? Well, if you want to, but it might not seem so cold, Johnny, if, uh, Johnny... You know, come to think of it, I promised another fling with your sisters, too. Oh. Okay, Johnny. Okay, if you want to go back in, let's go back in. But later, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Better feel that with a kiss. Why not? Kitty was the next one I managed to get away from the dance. Well, it's the least that could happen to Uncle Melvin after what he did. You know, all I have to say is I wish somebody would get rid of that old coot. Well, why don't you do it then, Kitty? Well, then, don't talk like that, Johnny. You're talking about murder. Weren't you? Well, I know it may have sounded that way, but I, I didn't mean it. No, I hope not. What are we talking about him for, hmm? Such a beautiful night. All the moonlight through the trees and... Hmm, Johnny? She would be kind of ashamed to waste it, now wouldn't it? Hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of chilly, too, isn't it? <laughs> Boy, that's an old line. Well, then it must be a good one, huh? Johnny! I mean, if it works, and does it? Johnny? Mm. Oh, no. Are you, are you out there, Johnny? Oh, Marion, you spoiled for it. You're like an old mother hen. 
Well, that's what you think. But Johnny promised to teach me the Texas Star, and that's what they're going to dance next. You did promise, Johnny. Got to keep a promise, Kitty. Oh, Don. Maybe later, hmm? Yes. I never dreamed that a hard-boiled insurance investigator could Wait so. a minute now, Marion. What did you say? Oh, now, look, dear. Didn't you think I'd know the minute I heard your name? And I suppose that you're here because old Uncle Melvin has this ridiculous idea that one of us is going to kill him. Is it ridiculous, Marion? Well, don't you know why the three of us met in Denver and came here when he asked us to? Why? To humor him. So he wouldn't get silly and write us out of his insurance and his will. That's all. Can you see a pretty little secretary like Kitty committing a murder? Or a softy like Thecla who wouldn't hurt a fly? How about you, Marion? Me? An old maid school teacher? <laughs> now, what do you think, Johnny? Well. Johnny, isn't it a shame to waste all this lovely moonlight? Oh, now, why couldn't I have had a teacher like you? <laughs> After the barn dance, the local folks went home and the ranch guests went back to their cabins. Except for Kitty and Thecla, who'd left me flat and paired off with a couple of boys with a fancy car. After delivering Marion to a cabin, I sat watching at the window of my own until her lights went out. Then I dropped in on Mr. Lockerty again. Yes, yes, I get plenty of sleep. But if you're going to bed now, Darrow, I'm going to stay up. Now, look, Mr. Lockerty. I'm going to sit here and read the rest of the night. All right. Whatever you say, but Thecla and Kitty are out somewhere with a couple of boys, and Marion's going to bed, so if you ask me... Oh, she has, has she? Huh? What about the light that just went on again there in Marion's cabin? Hmm? Look. See it. Oh. Okay. All right, then I'll stick around until she goes to bed again, and the others come in. Well, look, uh, if you are going to sit here for the rest of the night, why don't I pull down this window shade? Yes, that's a good idea. Okay, here we are. Get down. Get down. That shot was just outside the window. Whether it was meant for you or for me, it... Mr. Lockerty. Mr. Lockerty. He's dead. The shot that killed Mr. Lockerty brought the ranch guests out of their cabins just as quickly as they could throw something on them with their pajamas. Except for Kitty and Thecla and their boyfriends, who were there within minutes. A short time later, Marion appeared in bathrobe and slippers. I had the ranch manager phone for the sheriff, and then... Oh, Johnny, this is terrible, terrible. And in spite of the way I was talking tonight... Uh, Kitty. Well, I don't think it's so terrible. It's about time, I think. Thecla, that's no way to talk, regardless of how we may have felt about Uncle Melvin. Kitty, Thecla, you two got here in quite a hurry. Where were you when it happened? Johnny... You don't think that either of us... No, 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 don't get emotional, Feck. And Johnny, Feck and I and Pete and Wally... Oh, excuse me, Johnny Dollar. This is Pete McKenzie and, and Wally Thatcher. Hi, Mr. Dollar. Uh, well, didn't I see you four take off a while back? Yes. Yes, sir, we took the girls down the road for a beer after the dance. Yes, Johnny, we, we just got back and we're on our way to the cabins and we heard the shot. So we came over here instead. Yes, sir, that's just the way it was. I see. And aren't you going to ask about me, Johnny? What well, do I need to, Marion? No, no, Johnny, you don't. What's that, Kitty? As we came up the drive, we saw Marion's light go on there in her cabin. I couldn't sleep, Johnny, so I decided to make some cocoa and read a while. But before I could even... What's the matter, Johnny? Motive. 
Who else around here could possibly have a motive? But, Johnny, honey, surely you didn't think that one of us... I'm afraid I did, Thecla, but with Pete and Wally with you two, and both Mr. Lockerty and I saw the light go on in your cabin, Marion. Wait a minute. There's another possibility. Item three, 35 cents for a phone call to Colorado Springs to the one other person, the man who said he didn't care what happened to Lockerty. Yes, Dollar? Oh, then you are at home. Well, I've been home all evening. Why? Then you couldn't possibly have fired the shot and got all the way back there by now. Shot? What's that? Tell me, what's happened, Dollar? The sheriff and his men arrived, and I'll say this for them. They were very thorough. Also, they convinced me that disposal of the murder weapon could have been a cinch in a deep, mucky little pond in back of the row of cabins. By the time it was fished out, if it was there, fingerprints, if any, wouldn't mean a thing. And nobody, but nobody, was able to give any clue to the killer. A hunch? Okay. Maybe so. But one of those girls, one of them had recognized me. The only really clever one. The one who'd know the value of an airtight alibi. And she'd made a couple of points to me before it happened. Like their reason for coming. And she pointed a finger at the others while seemingly defending them. The only trouble was, darn it, that not only I, but others had seen that she was in her cabin when it happened. That she'd just turned on her light in there. We'd seen it. I'd seen it. Then I remembered. A little device that people use to protect their homes. So item four in Manitou Springs that morning, 11.25, for a gadget I hoped would turn the trick. Then that night, the girls and I sat together on the porch of the office unit. Uh, what did you say, Johnny? A check on your powers of observation, Thecla. I don't get it, Johnny. You will, Kitty. Now, look in through this window into the office. See the wall clock? Well, sure. Okay. Now, look over there at my cabin. I left the lights off, right? Well, yes, they're up in my cabin, too. All and... right, now, I'm going to leave you. And I want to know to the second what time I get inside my cabin and turn on the light in it. Sure. And then, Johnny? Then you'll see. Well, it's certainly taking Johnny long enough to get over there. Oh, just relax, Peck. I think he has something up his sleeve. If you want the truth, though, I can think of nicer things with Johnny than playing games. Well, it's right for you two. Oh, look, look, his lights are on, see? Okay, so he got there at exactly... Um, the time is exactly four and a quarter, four and a half minutes Don't after... bother, Kitty, I'm right here. Johnny! Just, Johnny, I... Well, just now saw so you turn on your lights way over there on your cabin. Well, you would have sworn that's where I was, wouldn't you? Well, of course. So would I, Johnny. The way you and the boys swore that Marion was in her cabin when your uncle was killed. But she wasn't. What? My lights went on over there just now because of a simple clockwork device that I put on the lamp cord earlier. An automatic switch? That's right. People use them to put on the lights in their homes while they're away and then turn them off in the mornings to make the house look occupied when they're not there. The way Marion made it look. 
Made it look as though she were in her cabin. Oh, John. Oh, no. Marion. That's right. Marion? But Johnny... Johnny, he didn't deserve to live. Maybe not, Marion. But nobody deserves to be murdered. Expense account total, including the trip home. Call it $400 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a case with a real switch to the finish. Tune in, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Can you get premium gasoline performance at regular gasoline price? Find out what so many other car owners have found. In three out of five cars, regular-priced Sinclair Dino Gasoline matches performance of premium gasolines, saves you up to four cents a gallon. Almost anywhere you see the Sinclair sign, you can save up to four cents a gallon with Dino and still get premium performance and mileage. Drive with care and buy Sinclair Dino Gasoline. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Fred Hendrickson. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Bill Smith, Edgar Staley, Freddie Chandler, Nettie Galen, Constance Simons, and Reynold Osborne. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Sound patterns by Walter Otto. Technical supervision by Mike Shostakis. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hannah speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. The Four's a Crowd Matter, an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, from the summer of 1962, and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. If you're a Baker Street Irregular, or a wannabe, then you know that May 22nd is a very special date. It's the birthday of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the character whose rooms were at 221B Baker Street, Sherlock Holmes. Sir Arthur was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, on this date in 1859. In addition to his literary achievements, which extended well beyond detective fiction, Arthur Conan Doyle's interests ranged far and wide. He was a physician, a gifted athlete, a politician, an amateur architect, and, most important to him, a spiritualist, dedicated to the idea that communication between the dead and the living was not only possible, but a fact. In 1927, in the very early days of sound motion pictures, the Fox Film Corporation recorded a visit with Sir Arthur, and we're about to hear the soundtrack of that short film. The great man is sitting in a garden with a book and his dog by his side, and here is the audio of that 1927 film of a talk by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, there are two things that people always want to ask me. Well, one of them is how I ever came to write the Sherlock Holmes stories. And the other is about how I came to have psychic experiences and to take so much interest in that question. Well, first of all, about the Sherlock Holmes stories, 
It came about in this way. I was quite a, a young doctor at the time. I had, of course, a scientific training. And uh, I used occasionally to read detective stories. It always annoyed me how in the old-fashioned detective story, the detective always seemed to get at his results, either by some sort of lucky chance or a fluke, or else it was quite unexplained how he got there. He got there, but he never gave an explanation how. Well, that didn't seem to me quite playing the game. It seemed to me that he's bound to give his reasons why he came to his conclusions. Well, when was I began to think about this, I began to think of turning scientific methods, as it were, onto the work of detection. And I used, as a student, uh, to have an old professor, his name was Bell, who was extraordinarily quick at deductive work. He would look at the patient, he would hardly allow the patient to open his mouth, but he would make his diagnosis of the disease, and also very often of the patient's nationality and occupation and other points, entirely by his part of observation. So naturally, I thought to myself, well, if a scientific man like Bell was to come into the detective business, he wouldn't do these things by chance. He'd get the thing by building it up scientifically. So, having once conceived that line of thought, uh, you can well imagine that I had, as it were, a new idea of the detective and one which it interested me to work out. I thought of a hundred little dodges, as you may say, a hundred little touches by which he could build up his conclusions, and then I began to write stories on those lines. At first, I think they attracted a little, very little attention. But after time, when I began the short adventures, one after the other, coming out month after month in the Strand magazine, uh, people began to recognize that it was different to the old detective, that there was something there uh, which was new. They began to buy the magazine, and uh, it uh, prospered. And so I may say, did I? We both came along together. And uh, from that time, Sherlock Holmes fairly took root. I've written a good deal more about him than I ever intended to do, but my hand has been rather forced by kind friends who continually wanted to know more. And so it is that this monstrous growth <laughs> has come out out of what was really a comparatively small seed. But the curious thing is how many people around the world who are perfectly convinced that he is a living human being. I get letters addressed to him, and I get letters asking for his autograph, get letters addressed to his rather stupid friend, Watson. I've even had ladies writing to say that they'd be very glad to act as his housekeeper. One of them, when she heard that he had turned to the occupation of keeping bees, wrote saying that she was an expert at segregating the queen, whatever that may mean, and that she was evidently predestined to be the housekeeper of Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if there's anything more I could say with advantage about him. But on the other point, which is to me, of course, a very much more serious one, on the question of my taking up this psychic matter, curiously enough, my first experiences in that direction 
for just about the time when uh, Sherlock Holmes was being built up in my mind. That would be about the year 1886 and 1887. So nobody can say that I formed my opinions on psychic matters uh, very hastily. It's just 41 years now since I wrote a signed article upon the subject, which appeared in a magazine called Light, so that I put myself on record. During these 41 years, I never lost any opportunity of reading, studying, and experimenting on this matter. People ask me, will I write any more Sherlock Holmes stories? I, I certainly don't think it's at all probable. But as I grow older, the psychic uh, subject always grows in intensity, and then one becomes more earnest upon it, and I should think that my few remaining years will probably be devoted much more in that direction than in the direction of literature. Nonetheless, of course, I haven't abandoned writing. One has to earn one's living. But my principal thoughts are that I should extend, if I can, uh, that knowledge which I have on psychic matters and spread it as far as I can to those who have been less fortunate. All that I can do is to be a gramophone on the subject, to go about, to meet people face to face, to try and make them understand that this thing is not the foolish thing which is so often represented, but that it really is a great philosophy and, as I think, the basis of all religious improvement in the future of the human race. I suppose I've said with more mediums, good and bad and indifferent than perhaps any living being. Anyhow, a larger variety because I've traveled so much all over the world and wherever I've gone, either in Australia, America, or South Africa, uh, the best that there was to be had in that direction uh, was put at my disposal. When I talk on this subject, I'm not talking about what I believe. I'm not talking about what I think. I'm talking about what I know. There's an enormous difference, believe me, between believing a thing and knowing a thing. I'm talking about things that I've handled, that I've seen, that I've heard with my own ears. And always, mind you, in the presence of witnesses. I never risk hallucination. I usually, in most of my experiments, have had six, eight, or ten witnesses, all of whom have seen and heard the same things that I have done. Gradually, I became more and more convinced on the matter as I studied year in, year out. But it was only in the time of the war when all these splendid young fellows were disappearing from our view. The whole world was saying, well, what's become of them? Where are they? What are they doing now? Have they dissipated into nothing? Or are they still the grand pillars that we used to know? It was only at that time that I realized the overpowering importance to the human race of knowing more about this matter. Then it was that I flung myself more earnestly into it and that I felt the highest purpose that I could possibly devote the remainder of my life, too, was trying to bring across to other people something of that knowledge and assurance which I had acquired myself. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, born 163 years ago today, 
in a short by the Fox Film Corporation in 1927, just three years before Sir Arthur's passing at the age of 71. A deep believer in spiritualism, in a way, Sir Arthur continues to speak to us and to new generations through his most famous creations, Sherlock Holmes, Dr. John H. Watson, Mrs. Hudson, Moriarty, and all the rest. You sometimes hear them here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We want to thank everyone who supported our big broadcast movie night this past Thursday and all those who attended. It was great seeing so many of you, and particular thanks go to our good friend NPR's Scott Simon for our special pre-show visit. It was a rousing success, and as they say, we must do this again sometime. Stay tuned, and I'm sure we will in the coming years. Speaking of our listeners, we got a very thoughtful note from one of our most loyal, Susan, in Seattle, Washington. She and her husband, Rich, are longtime big broadcast fans, and Susan wrote to remind us that today is National Maritime Day. It was originally set aside to honor the Merchant Marine, those brave men and women who serve on a combination of private and government-owned cargo and passenger ships and who become part of the military in times of war. In recent years, Maritime Day has expanded to cover not only the Merchant Marine, operating in international waters, but the whole maritime industry, including domestic commercial ships. We've taken that as license to bring you a number of old-time radio shows tonight with some oh, let's call them creative connections to Maritime Day. The first one, though, is legit. It's an episode of Fibber McGee and Molly from January 30th, 1945, a time when the Merchant Marine had proved itself crucial in turning the tide of World War II in our favor. And we'll hear about that in this show, along with a very confident, disparaging reference to the bleak future of our then-enemy, the Empire of Japan. From NBC, it's a wartime episode of Fibber McGee and Molly. Respectfully dedicated tonight to the United States Marine, the Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax for Home and Industry present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. of 79 Wistful Vista always stops at the best hotels. In fact, he's just stopped at the Wistful Vista Biltmore and bought a cigar. And here, walking through the lobby, we find Fibber McGee and Molly. Wise guy. What's the matter? Oh, that cigar clerk. I asked him if he would sell me an El Ropo Caballo, and he says yes. 
I can sell you one, but don't light it in here. Why? My goodness. Heavenly days, look at that crowd around that hotel desk and gate. Mm, bunch of unfounded rumors trying to find a place to lay their weary luggage. <laughs> they just turned away that gray-haired man with all the gold braids. Hmm? Say, what does four gold stripes on a navy sleeve mean? Oh, he's the officer in charge of distributing pinup pictures. <laughs> they call him a petty officer. Ah. Uh-huh. Petty's the fellow that draws. Oh, look, McGee. <laughs> what? Look at? over there. Huh? That sailor sitting on the suitcase. He looks so discouraged. Oh, no wonder he's sitting on the lock. <laughs> he ought to turn it up on end. Nice looking lad, isn't he? Maybe we could do something for him. Well, I don't know what, but it won't do any harm to give him a kind word. Come on. Hi there, sailor. What? Oh, how do you do? Anything bothering you, son? Except us. <laughs> I'm glad you spoke to me, ma'am. I, I was so lonesome I was about to go out and shoot myself. What? Game of billiards. Mm. Oh. <laughs> well, not that it's any of our business, but uh, couldn't you get a room here in the hotel? No, ma'am, nor any other hotel. It's all right, though. I'm just here for one night. One night is too long to sleep sitting on a suitcase, bud. You'd be going around tomorrow with circles under your pockets. <laughs> oh, I can make it up on the train tomorrow. What branch of the Navy are you in, uh, if it isn't a military secret? I'm in the Merchant Marine, ma'am. My hitch is up. Oh, my gosh, it is? Well, we'll stand in front of it if you want to hitch it down. <laughs> that sea-going underwear... McGee! He means he's been discharged. Yes, ma'am. I'm on my way home now. Going to join up again, bud? I don't know, sir. I might. And then again, I might try to get established in some shore job. Well, that's a very natural impulse, I'm sure. On the other hand, do you think there's any more important shore job than making sure we win the war? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. I'm going to think it over before I do anything. Look, uh, do you folks know of any place in town where I could sleep tonight? Not fussy, just some place that's dark, warm, and horizontal. <laughs> well, let me think, bud. Maybe the Elks Club could... No, they're redecorating. Uh, McGee? Huh? Uh, maybe we... Uh, I mean, it might be possible to... Uh... You mean, uh, hmm? Why not? Oh, very good question. Look, son, I'm Mr. McGee, and this is my wife, Mrs. McGee. Oh, well, I'm glad to meet you. I'm Tommy Davis. How do you do, I'm sure. Uh, look, uh... Mr. Davis? Tommy, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Look, Tommy, uh, why don't you come and stay with us tonight? We have plenty of room. Yeah, hot and cold running root beer, son. <laughs> Radio in every room. <laughs> they don't work, but they're there. <laughs> Gee, that would be... Well, no, thanks very much. I'll just... Ah, oh, now, now, come on, Tommy. You won't be a bit of trouble. Oh, it's very kind of you, ma'am, but I don't think I'd better. My train leaves very Look, early. Bud. Us seafaring men have got to stick together, see? Were you at sea, sir? Was he? He still is. (laughs) Had my own boat on the Illinois River, son. (laughs) 32-footer. I can tell you more about scuppering a fiddly hatch than you can shake a scuttlebutt at. (laughs) Why, mind one time we got caught in a trade wind that tore the starboard bulkheads right out of the gunnel. (laughs) Just the same. But just the same, sir, I I don't think I should. Oh, come on with us, Tommy, my boy. I'll teach you how to tie a Turk's head and a granny knot. My old granny spent one whole winter teaching me how to tie a Turk's It's very nice of you, sir, but I think it'd be better... I'll bet Alice will enjoy talking to you, too, Tommy. Well, I know, but... Alice? She boards with us, Tommy. Works in an airplane plant. Well, Uh, of course, uh, she may have a date for tonight. You know, she's so popular. That's because she's so beautiful. That wonderful blonde hair, those blue eyes, and that smile. That kid's got a smile that would make Himmler follow her into a Russian restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) However, Tommy...
Johnny, if you don't feel like you... Now, ma'am, I've changed my mind. Let's go. Swell. Right this way, Tommy. No, no, Molly, don't you carry that suitcase. It's too heavy. Oh, sure, let me carry it, please. Yeah, sure, let Tommy carry it. <laughs> Let's go this way, Tommy. Wait till I pick up my plate. We grab a bus. Billy Mills in the orchestra and stomping at the Savoy. Tommy, there's nothing like sailing to bring out the best in a man. I always travel by rail myself, particularly on a boat. <laughs> uh, did you say Alice ought to be home any minute? Who? Oh, Alice. Yeah, she ought to be home any minute, Tommy. Well, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Well, sir, the time I and Fred Nittany took our boat on a cruise to Starve Rock was really something. All of a sudden, out of the south-south-east come a nor'wester. Uh... <laughs> A nor'wester comes out of the northwest, Mr. McGee. Oh, ordinarily, yes. But that's what made this wind so unusual. Uh, it was a freak storm. An 80-mile gale. Tore the lashings off the mizzen and the keel hauled the jib so he could hardly batten down the mainstay. <laughs> we ran into one of those out of Murmansk one night. Murmansk? Norway, huh? Murmansk is not in Norway, huh? dearie. It's in, uh, up near the... Uh... Russia. Oh, <laughs> what did I say, Norway? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I meant Russia. Oh, I said it. I know it was right there on the Mediterranean. <laughs> well, yes, it's, it's in that general direction, all right. Well, sir, there we were, bowling along with the taffrail completely shivered under the boom cradle. The land yards were groaning, and the forepeak was fluttering, the bilges were banging against the tiller, when all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we struck. My goodness. You struck what, sir, a rock? Oh, a bargain. <laughs> we agreed to jump overboard and swim ashore, which we did. Uh, what became of the boat, dearie? We never knew. But they say that on dark, windy nights around the Illinois River, a ghostly little sailboat can be seen silently gliding up and down the stream. Looking for its lost master. <laughs> Say, maybe we can see it tonight. It's been getting awfully windy in here. <laughs> what kind of a boat was it, sir? Sloop? No. 
Star class, three-masted cat boat with a balloon spin maker and a retractable cargo boom. <laughs> I never heard of a ship like that, sir. <laughs> well, Natch. Natch, I designed it myself. <laughs> what was the displacement? Oh, didn't have any. Them luxuries weren't for me, bud. <laughs> when I went sailing, there was no fault at all about it. I mind one time we were sailing around the Horn. You don't mean Cape Horn by any chance? Why, certainly not. Somebody threw an old brass tube in the water near the dock, and we always had to sail around. <laughs> well, sir... Now look, McGee, uh, let Tommy do a little talking. You haven't let him get a word in edgeways. Why, sure. Go ahead, Tommy. What kind of boat you been on? Cargo ships, mostly, sir, but I was on one tanker. We were in a convoy to Halifax. Ah, uh, and... Halifax. I planned to sail up there one summer. 1922 it was. Or was it 1923? No, it was 1922. Or was it? Well, now, let's see... Zan lost his teeth in the hay in 1920. <laughs> no, it was 1924, I think. Yes, it was 1924. Well, it could have been 25. Well, I wish you knew for sure, sweetheart. Huh? I'm all a Twitter to know what year it was you didn't go anyplace. <laughs> Look, Tommy, uh, did you say you were going to sign on for the Merchant Marine again? I don't know, ma'am. I haven't made up my mind. I've got to think about my future. Why, sure you have, son. But I was reading the other day that after the war, the Merchant Marine was going to be one of the great American industries. My gosh, with the experience you'll have then, you really ought to have something. You might be right about that, sir, but... Well, maybe the boy doesn't like the life, McGee. Oh, I love it, ma'am. I was just thinking if I ever got married... If you ever got married, your wife would be pretty proud of you, Tommy. Holding down a good job with a big steamship line and knowing you did the job you were trained for all through the war. Incidentally, I wonder if they take me. Oh, sure. Hmm? Well, you get seasick crossing the gutter on a rainy day. <laughs> but, Tommy, why don't you... What's the matter, Tommy? I thought I heard the front door open. You suppose, Alice, my... Hello, folks. I hope I... Oh, excuse me. That's all right, Mr. Wilcox. This is Tommy Davis in the Merchant Marine. How do you do? Glad to meet you, Tommy. I and he were just swapping experiences, Junior. Nautical stuff. <clears throat> Sit down and listen if you want to, but... But you won't understand much of it. <laughs> it was quite a swap, too, Mr. Wilcox. Tommy has only been to Russia, Asia, Africa, the South Seas, and uh, Iceland, but himself here has been to Starve Rock, Illinois, in a catboat. <laughs> what did you mean I wouldn't understand nautical talk, pal? Why well, I shipped his purser through the West Indies for several summer vacations. Uh, did you ever run into a forest riper named Brannigan in those latitudes, sir? Old salt pork Brannigan? Uh. Why, sure. He was my skipper for several runs. A great old guy. Yes, sir. He always had a happy ship. I was with him in a convoy to Melbourne. Uh, speaking of happy ships, I remember one ah, time... Ah, good old salt pork <laughs> Brannigan. <laughs> Say, has he still got that parrot that swears, Tommy? Yes, sir, only it doesn't swear anymore. We, we got strafed by some zeros one day, and ever since then, the parrot just says, Oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> These nautical discussions are a little over my head, boys. I always thought a quarter deck was 13 cards. Speaking of quarter decks, I had an experience once. We had a starboard taxi, but we had no hammer. So uh, I... Tommy, uh, remember how old Brannigan used to be so fussy about keeping the wardroom ship shape? Mm, the forecastle too, sir. We had to polish the linoleum every third day or lose liberty. Oh, sailor. <laughs> uh, what did you polish the linoleum oh. with, Tommy? Let me think. Oh, yes, it was called Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat. Wonderful stuff. Weren't you sticking your commercial neck out there a little, Mr. Wilcox? Not at all. Captain Brannigan always insisted on the best there was. You know, salt water's pretty tough on linoleum. Had to keep it protected. On the boat I had, we always used... Well, I remember one time a supercargo took aboard some inferior floor polish, 
and he nearly got keel-hauled. Old Brannigan said, I'll take a marlin spike to the next chicken farmer that uses anything but Johnson's glow coat for the linoleum on my ship. Yes, sir. He'd never let us use anything else either. Said it saved a lot of the crew's time because it was so easy to apply. It made the linoleum last so much longer. Well, shiver my timbers. I'm glad we always use it in our galley. <laughs> Speaking of galleys, this catboat I had... Uh, are you on liberty now, Tommy? No, sir. Discharged. Thinking of taking a shore job. We've been telling him that he's needed a lot more in the Merchant Marine, Mr. Wilcox. You certainly are, Tommy. Very badly. <clears throat> Trained seamen are pretty scarce. It's men like you the services depend on to deliver the goods where they need it. You know what General Eisenhower said about you fellas? No, sir. Well, he said every man in this allied command is quick to express his admiration for the loyalty, courage, and fortitude of the officers and men of the Merchant Marine. They've never failed us yet, and we know they never will. Gee, did General Eisenhower say that? He sure did, Tommy. I, I remember reading about that. Yeah, you better stay with it, Tommy. You're an essential man, and you're building up to a great job after the war in the Merchant Marine. And say, if you ever ship with old Salt Pork Brannigan again, Tommy, tell him Purser Wilcox wished him a happy voyage. <laughs> yes, sir. What are you doing now, sir, in case he asks? I'm selling Johnson's self-polishing glow coat, Tommy. When I hit the deck, they rise and shine. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, what I dropped in for, pal, was to know if you're going bowling tonight. Oh, not tonight, Waxy. <laughs> <laughs> if Alice Darling and, uh, Darling and Tommy here go out to a movie or something tonight, they might want me to go along. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be as welcome as a spotlight in Lover's Lane. <laughs> you have to go now, Mr. Wilcox? Yes, I do, Molly. I'll see you later. Glad to have met you, Tommy. Glad to have had your board, sir. Nice to have been aboard, mister. Nice to have been aboard stuff. Huh. Navy etiquette, Molly. <laughs> hey, did I tell you the experience I had once when we were running for the harbor and a sudden squeal come up? A sudden what? Squeal. <laughs> That's a small squall. <laughs> well, sir. Well, pardon me, dearie. Uh, Tommy, uh, dinner ought to be ready in a very short time, and Alice should be here any minute. Would you like to go upstairs and wash up a bit? Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. Uh, second door, upper deck. Left of the companionway, sailor. Soon as you've stowed your, ge stowed your gear and fleeced your puss, come below. Aye, aye, sir. Right away, sir. Oh, my. Isn't he a nice lad, McGee? Yeah. I'm sure Alice and Dr. Gamble will like him. Doc Gamble? What's that old bedside bandit got to do with it? Why, you remember, you invited him to dinner tonight yourself. I invited him? Oh, doggone it. Why can't I keep my big fat mouth shut? <laughs> The Kingsman singing Oh Michael. Here is a story of love in its glory. Believe me, it's straight from the heart. The time is the present, the place you can guess, and the hero is ready to start. He speaks Oh Michael, Oh Michael. Stick his head out the window, it's Jimmy. Oh Michael, Oh Michael. Would just like to go places tonight. Oh Michael, Oh Michael. For the kiss you'll give me Oh Michael, oh Michael When you kiss me the world is alright Our romance is while we're dancing While me heart flies as high as a kite Oh Michael, oh Michael Hurry up, hurry down to your jimmy When a guy's on a foilo How he wants a coilo When I wants me moitle tonight Don't you break a date Hey, boy Don't you break a date Don't you break a date Are you gonna leave me standing here Until I close up here Oh, moitle Oh, moitle Use the perfume I like Don't forget it 
On Weigel, me Teigel, there'll be no sweeter goil in the block. Better hurry down, better hurry up. Oh, Michael, hey, Michael, if a guy should get fresh, he'll regret it. Oh, Michael, me Teigel, feel me muscles, days hard as a rock. I got a lot to tell yous, all the things that me heart couldn't write. So, might get your skite on your site and leave fine on your jimmy. Though I ain't much on grammar, I loin about glamour when I'm with me, Michael. gravy, Alice? Oh, no, thank you, Mrs. McGee. I have to watch my figure, you know. Couldn't think of a pleasanter assignment, my dear. Ah, pipe down, you old Rui. You're old enough to be her grandfather. Uh, please pass the biscuits if you can stop gnawing on that chicken leg long enough. Pass the chicken, will you please, Tommy? Uh, give Alice some. Certainly. Have some Alice chicken? I mean, <laughs> have some chicken, Alice? <laughs> No, no, thank you, Tommy. And, oh, go on with what you were telling me about the time you had to jettison the cargo off Cape Hatteras. About the time you had to what? Had to jettison the cargo, Dopey. Huh? If you'd ever gotten enough salt air in your nostrils to clear your stuffy little brain, you'd know that means throw the cargo overboard in an emergency. We had to do that once in the middle of the China Sea. Who did, Doctor? The ship I was on. Taking a world cruise, Doctor? Uh, I took plenty of them, my boy. I was ship's surgeon on the Atlantic and Orient line for a long time. Ah, likely story. <laughs> if you know so much about boats, what's a fiddle hatch? Oh, I know what that is, Mr. McGee. Gee, do you really, Alice? What is it, Alice? Well, it's a grating over the engine room for ventilating purposes. Correct, Alice. How do you know so much about boats, Alice? Well, when I was a little girl, I lived with my uncle, and he had a hundred-foot yacht. We traveled all over in it. Well... Looks like you and I were the only ones who didn't know a bilge from a bulge, McGee. I'd know his bulge from a bilge any place. <laughs> you better cut down on the calories, Chubby, or people will think you're smuggling balloons. <laughs> Have the butter, please, Tommy. I mind one time when a guy on my boat broke his arm in a heavy sea, being thrown against the wall of the cabin. Uh, and... They don't call it a wall on board ship, Mr. McGee. They call it a bulkhead. Yeah, that's what I meant. Uh. <laughs> Anyway, we, he was laying there on the floor. Not floor, landlubber. Deck. Yes. He was laying there on the deck while I went downstairs. We don't say downstairs, sir. We say below. So I went below. <laughs> and I made a splint out of a broomstick I found in the kitchen. The galley. In the galley. Then I come back upstairs. Uh, you mean you came topside, Mr. McGee? I came topside with the broomstick and I made an emergency splint. It was kind of crude, but we didn't... We call that a jury rig, sir. Means temporary. Another biscuit, dearie? No, I don't want another biscuit, thank you. I just don't want to be interrupted in everything I say, that's all. Oh, sorry, sir. Oh, it isn't you, Tommy, my boy. Our host is slightly incinerated that he can't impress Alice and me with his nautical knowledge. By the way, did you ever get to Oahu? Oh, yes, sir, several times. Beautiful voice. Oh, I remember it very well, Doctor. Diamond Head to Starboard, Molokai to Port, and all those flying fish skittering around. <laughs> Gee, I wish you and I had... I mean, well, maybe someday... We... I mind one time I was sailing on the Illinois uh, River and my... Uh, you're going back in the Merchant Marine Service, aren't you, Tommy? Yes, sir, I think I will. Alice says she'll write to me every day, every week, too. Yeah. I'll send you some cookies, Tommy. In that case, Mrs. McGee, I'll make it my life's work. Oh, anyway, we were scuttling along, see? Making about ten knots an hour. Oh, you when... don't say ten knots an hour, Mr. McGee. You just say ten knots. 
A knot is a unit of speed, a nautical mile, about 6,080 feet in an hour. Coffee, Doctor? It's the way you like it. Dark as Japan's future. <laughs> and strong as a brewery horse. <laughs> well, thanks, Molly. I will. Uh, the reason I ask, Tommy, is that I think you've got a great future in the Merchant Marine. You'll have eventually a secure job in a tremendous industry. Uh, no thanks, no cream. Yes, sir, I guess I will. But Alice says the important thing is they need me now. Oh, they really do, Tommy. And in six months' time, a man can now make the progress it would have taken him three years to make before Pearl Harbor. Talk about progress. When I had my catboat on the Illinois River, I was tying up to the dock Don't one day. Don't say tying up, amateur. Say making fast. Okay, wise guy. So I was fast making to the dock one day. <laughs> and I noticed the boat was kind of low in the water. So I went back aboard. Back aboard. Yeah. Back aboard. Is that right, you experts? Sounds reasonable. Quite correct, sir. Perfect for once. Go ahead, Mr. McGee. So I goes back aboard, see, and went down inside of the keel to investigate... Inside the keel? Suffering shades of John Paul Jones. <laughs> uh, you mean down into the hold, Mr. McGee. Excuse me, please. McGee, where are you going? I'm going to finish my dinner in the kitchen. That's where I'm going. I can't open my mouth around here, but what some salty wise guy jumps down my throat. I know when I've had enough. I'll see you later. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there's really an urgent, almost desperate need for men in the Merchant Marine. Experienced, able-bodied seamen, mates, cooks, bakers, radio telegraphers, firemen, oilers, water tenders, and engineers of all classes are needed immediately. Three new merchant ships are being launched every day, and we must have men to man them. This is a vital war job with a great post-war future. So we hope all qualified men will wire collect at once to Merchant Marine, Washington, D.C., giving their ratings and addresses. They'll be put on standby pay immediately, and transportation will be furnished to the port of assignment. Get out on the water, men, for the land's sake. Good night. Good night, all. This is Marlowe Wilcox, speaking for the makers of Johnson Wax Finishes for Home and Industry, inviting you all to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Fibber McGee and Molly in the winter of 1945 with a plea for all hands to join the Merchant Marine, as my Uncle Sherman did a few months before that broadcast. It's one of our offerings in honor of National Maritime Day here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog, Kellen Quigley, and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org.
No maritime setting in Dodge City, Kansas, but we do have the second part of a two-part Gunsmoke story. If you missed the first installment, titled The Choice, don't worry, you'll catch on fast. And this second chapter? It's called Second Choice. It comes from November 6, 1955, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Well, ain't it? What? Oh, oh, yeah, sure, Chester. Well, doggone it, the wind ain't blowing, it ain't raining, or hailing, or snowing, or freezing, or nothing, and if that don't make for a fine day up here, then I'm going back to Texas where it does. <laughs> I'm sorry, Chester. I, I, uh, I was thinking about Andy Hill. Mm, Andy. Uh, we'll find out about him in a couple minutes. Uh, look, uh, Chester, why don't you go over and see if the telegrams come yet, huh? I'll be waiting over there for you. Over where? Oh. <laughs> Miss Kitty. I'll be back directly. <laughs> Hello, Matt. Hello, Kitty. Fine day, isn't it? Yeah. You got something on your mind? Chester's gone over to see if that sheriff down in Oklahoma Territory sent me an answer yet. Oh, about Andy Hill? Yeah. Well, he's only wanted for robbery, Matt. I should think after you're telling him how he brought in a man wanted for murder, they'd be willing to go easy on him. Well, I hope so, Kitty. And especially since he's settled down here and making a good name for himself. If they'll take my word for it. Well, the sheriff will have to take your word for it. <laughs> he's probably never even heard of me. Hello, Miss Kitty. Marshal. Hello, Andy. Andy. Heard anything from Oklahoma, Marshal? Uh, Chester's over at the telegraph office right now. Oh. Well, uh, I hope it's good news. Why don't you wait and find out, Andy? I'll find out soon enough, Miss Kitty. Right now, I got to shoe a couple of horses for Jim Buck. I promised I'd have it done by noon. Jim was telling me yesterday you're the best man he ever hired. Oh, Anybody can ride shotgun, Miss Kitty. All you do is sit there and keep your eyes open. No, it's more than that. He trusts you. It makes me feel good to hear that, Miss Kitty. 
Goodbye. Bye. You know where to find me, Marshal. Yeah, sure, Andy. If there were more men like him around Dodge, it might not be such a bad place to live. <laughs> then I'd be out of a job, Kitty. <laughs> you could find something else to do. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Morning, Miss Kitty. Well, hello, Chester. Uh, here's the telegraph, Mr. Dillon. What's it say, Chester? Well, it's not... You better read it. Uh-huh. I'm sending Deputy Jack Harder a Turn Andy Hill for trial. Signed, Bob Catlin, sheriff. Well, he puts it real short, doesn't he? Yeah. He must have some reason for not giving Andy no chance. I will find out when this Jack Hawk gets here, Chester. You gonna put Andy in jail, Matt? No. I'm not even gonna tell him about this until I've talked to Hall. Andy's nice and gentle now, but he'll fight like a tiger anybody tries to arrest him. And he's some handy with a gun, too. Maybe he won't have to fight, Chester. Maybe I'll just send Jack Haw back home empty-handed. But if he's got a legal warrant for Andy... Well, there's going to be trouble, Kitty. One way or the other. Chester, will you please stop dusting my desk? Well, but look at the... Marshal Dillon? Yeah, come in. My name's Hall, Marshal Jack Hall. Uh, how are you? Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot, huh? How do you do? We've been expecting you. Sheriff Catlin said he was going to send a telegram. Yeah, he did. You got Andy Hill locked up here? No, I haven't. No? I haven't seen a warrant for his arrest yet. Oh, I forgot. Here it is, Marshal. Signed by Sheriff Catlin himself. Uh-huh. That's a mighty fancy signature he's got. Well, it looks legal. But, uh, wait a minute. What is it, Marshal? This is a warrant for the arrest of Andy Hill for murder. Didn't Sheriff Catlin explain... No, he didn't. And I guess he figured it'd be better if I did. Well, go ahead. Well, the sheriff got your letter about Andy, how he brought in that murderer and how he's become a good citizen up here. And I think he was willing to forget that little robbery charge against him. Same. Why didn't he? A man was killed just before Andy left Oklahoma Territory, Marshal. There was three witnesses to it, but we didn't know that until they decided to talk just the other day. And they say it was Andy who did the killing? That's right. Tried to hold up a saloon and killed the bartender. How come these witnesses waited so long? They was afraid. They thought Andy'd kill them for talking before we could catch him. Well, I guess they got to feeling guilty about it. I see. Marshal, I, I think I know how you feel. You've come to like Andy. Most everybody does until they really get to know him. The boy's a liar to begin with, a real clever one. 
He can usually talk his way out of anything, just like his brother. His brother? His brother murdered a man, too, Marshal, about a year ago. I see. They're both liars and they're both killers, Marshal. Don't feel bad about being taken in by Andy. They tell me just about everybody has been one time or another. They tell you? I don't know him myself. I only been deputy down there for the last couple of months. But I know a lot about Andy. Uh-huh. When do you want to start back, huh? I was thinking of taking the stage tomorrow morning. You stand at the Dodge house? Yes, I am. All right, come by in the morning. I'll have Andy here. Your town, Marshal. I'll do whatever you say. He'll be here in the morning. Unless he tries to shoot me. It's kind of hard to believe, ain't it, Mr. Dillon? Yeah. Holly ain't got no reason to be lying, I guess. No. And after all you've done for Andy, and he's nothing but a common killer. There he is, working over there at the anvil. Uh, Chester, hmm? you wait outside here, huh? I may have trouble with him. All right, sir. What are you doing here, Marshal? Sheriff Catlin sent a deputy to take you back to Oklahoma Territory, Andy. What? They want you for the murder of that bartender. Bartender? What are you talking about? You might as well admit it, Andy. The three witnesses have already talked. Uh, I don't know what this is all about, Marshal, but I didn't kill nobody. They got me mixed up with my brother. I heard about him. This deputy tell you? Yeah. What's his name? Jack Hall. I never heard of him. He's got a warrant for your arrest, Andy. Signed and legal. There's something wrong about this. I don't like it. There's no reason why you should. Marshal, uh, my brother killed a man down there. Name of Bob Butler. I never knew him. I never even seen him. But this butler had a cousin, and I heard he swore he'd kill one of us hills for it, and he wasn't particular which one. That's got nothing to do with this, Andy. How do I know this Jack Hall ain't really Bob Butler's cousin? He could shoot me easy before we ever got back there. It's no use, Andy. I had a wire from the sheriff, and Hall's got a warrant signed by him now. You give me your gun. I thought she was my friend. I'm a lawman, Andy. That don't make me kill you. You would, wouldn't you? I don't want to. All right. Take my gun. But you're the same as killing me, Marshal. Good morning, Chester. Andy. Morning, Mr. Dillon. Mr. Dillon, Andy just won't say nothing. Not a word. 
Now, maybe that shotgun you're holding on him's got something to do with it. Well, I didn't want him to get away just because I let him out of his cell. He won't get away. Morning, Marshal. Chester. Ah, good morning. Well, this the prisoner? Mm-hmm, that's him. Andy Hill. Heard a lot about you, Andy. Feel like I know you real well. He's not talking much, huh? No. Well, he'll talk at his trial. If there is a trial. What do you mean? Of course there'll be a trial. Will there? Andy thinks maybe you're going to shoot him on the way back, huh? Why would I want to shoot him? He thinks your name might be Butler. Butler? Well, that's the man Andy's brother killed. He says Butler had a cousin. Uh, this cousin swore he'd get one of the Hill boys for it. Either one. It's true, Marshal. I've heard it myself, but... Now, there's something Andy doesn't know. Butler's cousin was killed in a saloon brawl about a month ago. I was with Sheriff Catlin when he arrested the man who killed him. Well, there you are, Andy. You see, you've got nothing to worry about. You'll get a trial. You'll get a fair trial. Right now, we better get going. Stage leaves in half an hour. You gonna handcuff me? No. Not here, not in Dodge. I don't want to cause you no embarrassment, Andy. I'm going to take you back, but I'm going to make it as easy on you as I can. There. You see, Andy? Oh, ain't he a nice fellow? Let's go. Goodbye, Marshal. Thanks for your help. Goodbye. Goodbye, Chester. Goodbye, Mr. Haw. Goodbye, Andy. Marshal? Yeah, Andy. I made a mistake. Oh? I should have fought it out with you when I had a chance. Chester. Uh, morning, Mr. Dillon. You at your breakfast yet? Well, that's where I'm headed right now. Uh, well, if you'll stop in at the Dodge house with me for a minute, I'll go with you. Okay, fine. What, uh, what's going on at the Dodge house? Well, a fellow whose room there borrowed some money off me last night. He said he'd pay it back this morning. Ah, uh-huh, see. It oughtn't to take but a minute, Mr. Dillon. He said he'd have it waiting for me. He's going to leave it with a clerk here. Good. Oh, morning, Marshal. Chester. Good morning, Avery. Avery. Ah, what can I do for you, huh? Uh, did Sam Adams leave some money here for me? Money? Oh, no. No? Well, where's he at? Well, he paid his bill and left about an hour ago, Chester. He left? Where'd he go to? I don't know. He got on his horse and rode out of town. Yeah, but now he, he couldn't. He owed me some money. I don't even know where he's from. Sorry, I can't help you, Chester. Now, wait a minute, Chester. Don't get excited. Let's take a look at the register here. It ought to say where he's from. Well, they don't always put that down, Marshal. Most of them just sign their names. Well, we'll take a look anyway. Gosh. Yeah, you're right. Most of them do just sign their names. Yeah, sure. 
Jack Hall. Jack Hall. What's the matter, Mr. Dillon? Hall's signature, Chester. Well, certainly Mr. Hall stayed here, but uh, he's gone now, Marshal. No, he hasn't. That stage is just pulling out now. Where are you going, Mr. Dillon? Talk to one of your passengers, Jim. Sure, I'll wait. Well, what is it, Marshal? What'd you stop us for? I got something to tell you, Hawk. Get down. Okay. You too, Andy. Come on down here. Sure. What do you want him for, Marshal? What's this all about? Here, stay in here, Jim. You can get moving now. No, you wait. Get moving, I said, Jim. Now, what do you think you're doing, Marshal? Now, why'd you do that? I said I had something to tell you, huh? You didn't have to send the stage off. You're not going anywhere. What are you talking about? I just saw your signature on the register over at the Dodge House. My signature? It's a mighty fancy one, huh? Just like Sheriff Catlin's on that warrant you showed me. What are you driving at, Marshal? Sheriff Catlin didn't sign that warrant. You did. You're smart, Marshal. Let's see if you're as fast with your gun as you are with your head. Drop, Andy! You hit, Andy? I'm all right, Marshal. You missed me. Well, he's dead, Andy. He'd have killed me if you hadn't shot him, Marshal. Yeah, he was a real feuding man. Your brother killed his cousin, and he was willing to die right here if he could only take you with him. Yeah. He is probably a deputy, though. That's how he got hold of my letter to Sheriff Catlin. Sure. Catlin probably never saw your letter. Yeah. Well, Andy... Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to write him again. (laughs) And this time, I don't think you're going to have any trouble. You know, a man could lose his life on the frontier and not create much stir. But if he made a new one for himself, well, he had the respect of everyone. So, uh, be with us next week. Until then, good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Vic Perrin, and Joseph Kearns. Harley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. 
Join the Arthritis and Rheumatism Foundation in its efforts to solve the mysteries of these painful and crippling diseases. Send your contribution to Arthritis in care of your local postmaster. Be sure and listen to another transcribed story of the Old West on Gunsmoke. Next week, at this same time. The conclusion of a two-part Gunsmoke story an episode called Second Choice from the fall of 1955. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog, Kellen Quigley, and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org, Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and please see what's in store for you on our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast, and on Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. You know what? We don't play enough Spike Jones on this program. For those of you not familiar with Mr. Jones's work, he sits atop a distinguished pile of satirical artists, including Weird Al Yankovic, Mickey Katz, Stan Freeberg, P.D.Q. Bach, and, in our own time, Donald Glover. Spike Jones and his comedy band The City Slickers made one of the strongest and most unifying musical statements of World War II, the classic In Der Fuhrer's Face. Millions of Americans joined them in facing the Nazis with a robust <laughs> Years after the war, but before their several forays into television, Mr. Jones and his band appeared on several episodes of the Navy recruitment radio series, The Land's Best Bands. We're going to hear the familiar voice of Don Wilson, Jack Benny's announcer, introducing the musicians, and then hear them send up one of the hundreds of hit songs that glorified the American South in the first half of the 20th century, Way Down Yonder in New Orleans, complete with a lyric about... Creole Babies with Flashing Eyes. Neither the lyric nor the tune, though, can stand up to Spike Jones's signature orchestration, featuring, as usual, gunshots, car horns, cowbells, klaxons, and washboards, plus some really accomplished musicians. It was all in the cause of Navy recruitment, so in honor of National Maritime Day, here are Spike Jones and his City Slickers from a 1951 broadcast of the U.S. Navy syndicated series, The Land's Best Bands. From Hollywood, the United States Navy, the greatest Navy in the world, presents The Land's Best Bands. Starring another of America's great orchestras, those exponents of musical depreciation. The band that plays for fun, Spike Jones and his City Slickers. Once again, the United States Navy and its Naval Reserve welcome you aboard for another musical session with the land's best bands. And this is Don Wilson with a mighty big invitation to lend an ear to the transcribed shenanigans of Doodles Weaver, George Rock, Freddie Morgan, Del Porter, and the entire aggregation. The zaniest band in the land, Spike Jones. On wings of song, Mr. Jones summons forth tenor Del Porter to recapture the magic of the gracious old world city that is New Orleans. 
Join us now as Mr. Porter takes us way down yonder. In the land of dreamy scenes, there's a garden of Eden, that's what I mean. Three old babes with flashing eyes, softly whisper with tender sighs, stop. Oh, won't you give your lady fair a little smile, stop. You know you love to linger there a little while. There is heaven right here on earth with those beautiful queens, way down yonder in New Orleans. Don Wilson and Spike Jones and his city slickers recruiting for the U.S. Navy in an excerpt of The Land's Best Bands in 1951. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Tonight's Dragnet episode is especially rough, and you might want to make sure that no little kids are listening to it. The case is that upsetting. It comes from the first year of Dragnet on NBC in early 1950. That's a time when the show was aired at 10.30 p.m., so it's clear this was never meant to be heard by very young ears. Just the title that radio collectors use will give you an idea of why I'm being so cautious. It's called Claude Jimerson, Child Killer. From February 2nd, 1950, and NBC, here is Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, this program is for you, not your children. The subject is of vital importance to you as parents. This is the story of a vicious man. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. Two small girls are reported missing. Somewhere between their homes and a neighborhood grocery store, they dropped from sight. Your job, find them. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, October 27th. It was cloudy in Los Angeles. 
We're working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. We were on the way out from Central Division. It was 16 minutes past 8 p.m. when we got to South Peoria Street. Number 267. Short gloomy, uh. Yeah, it's sultry. Looks like we're in for some rain. Yes, sir? Police officers. Is Lieutenant Barker here? Yes, you want to come in? Thank you. This is Sergeant Romero. I'm Sergeant Friday, Central Homicide. How are you? My name's Claude Jimerson. Uh, Lieutenant Barker's in here, uh, on the phone now. Hi, Captain. Yeah. I'll let you know. Romero. Friday. How's it going, Lieutenant? Not good. You met Mr. Jimerson? Oh, sure. Sit down, gentlemen. Would you like some coffee? I can have the wife make some. No, thank you. We didn't want to bother the girl's parents any more than we had to. Jimerson here is one of the neighbors. He's been nice enough to let us use his phone. The kids disappeared about four this afternoon, is that right? At 3.45. Got out a local broadcast on him. Here's a missing report. Thelma Griswold, age 11. Barbara Sperry, seven-year-old. You talked to both families. Yeah. About 3.30 this afternoon, Mrs. Griswold sent her daughter to the grocery store down on Sycamore Avenue. It's about ten blocks from their home. The um, Sperry girl, a friend of hers, she went with her. Anybody at the store remember seeing them? According to the grocery clerk, they were there about 3.45. Mother gave the kids a note. They bought a loaf of white bread, a half pound of bacon, a dozen oranges. Yeah. That's right, Sergeant. I hope nothing's happened to the kids. We've been neighbors to the Griswolds for years. Sperry's too. Did you notice if the little girls were going in the direction of their home? Yes, they were. The last time I saw them, they were about a block away, heading straight for home. Little Sperry girl had her dog with her. Champ, I think they call him. He's a collie. And he's missing, too. That's right, Joe. Not a trace of the kids or the dog. Juvenile officers from 77th Street have been checking the neighborhood for the past three hours. And are the girls in the habit of wandering off like this? Parents say no. It's the first time. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks very much, Mr. Jimerson. Well, not at all, Sergeant. Sure you won't have a cup of coffee? No, no, thanks. We don't like to bother you, but we may have to check back with you later tonight. Routine questions. If I can help out in any way to find those girls, let me know. Yeah, we'll let you know, Jim. Thanks again. Nice fellow. Yeah, most of the neighbors we've talked to have been the same. Anxious to help. Some of them are out with our juvenile officers now, trying to dig up a lead on the kids. You check the movie theater and the playgrounds in the neighborhood. Everything, Joe. Those some of your men from juvenile, Lieutenant? Yeah, looks like it. Yeah, Schwartz and Preston. Lieutenant? Yeah, Preston, what you got? Found the kid's dog, Cully. Where? Just above Sanchez Drive, up in the hills. Hope it's no indication. How do you mean? Dog's dead. The Collie dog was taken to a veterinarian on Jefferson Boulevard to be examined for cause of death. We put in a call to the office, and a special detail of men was assigned to aid in searching the area where the dog was discovered. We got out an all-points bulletin. The fathers of the missing girls and a dozen neighbors joined in the search. With the aid of flashlights, we started from the end of Sanchez Drive, and as best we could, we covered the ground for almost a full mile back into the Sunset Hills. 10.55 p.m. started to thunder. The search went on. The hilly terrain and thick patches of scrub oak didn't make the job any easier. 11.15 p.m. started to rain. Watch your step, Joe. The rocks are slippery. Yeah. I can't figure it. Not a sign. What do you think? I don't know. Wait a minute. Flash your light over here. No, here. See something? I thought I did. Yeah. Scrap of brown paper. Who's this come? Sergeant. Is that you? Oh, Jimerson? Yeah. What's that you got? I found it. Right down there. Just off the path. Paper sack. Look. Uh, 
A loaf of bread, a few oranges, a package of bacon. Where'd you find it? Right down there. Mr. Holmquest and me, we were heading back for the cars when I saw this bag lying to one side of the bush. We'll take it, Jimerson. Thanks. Let's go, Bill. That means that Barbara and Thelma were up here today. You haven't mentioned that to either one of the girls' fathers. No, I haven't. Good. They're having a hard enough time as it is. Friday, Ben, see him for a minute? Yeah. Excuse us, Mr. Jimerson. Certainly. Yeah? Schwartz and I checked with the vet who examined the dog. What'd he say? Says the dog was beaten to death. We made another attempt to continue the search of the Sunset Hills area for the two missing girls, but the heavy rain and the darkness made the job impossible. The rain had also destroyed the physical evidence at the spot where we had found the grocery bag. We went back to Jimerson's house and called the office again. Another detail of men was assigned to be on hand to help in the search when it resumed at daylight. Chief of Detectives Thad Brown and Captain Harry Elliott of Homicide were notified of late developments. At 25 minutes past midnight, we started to retrace the steps of the two missing girls from the time they left their homes at 3.30 the afternoon before. We covered every foot of ground along the route which the girls reportedly took on their way to the grocery store. We got the grocery clerk out of bed and interviewed him again. We talked with two elderly ladies in the neighborhood who said that they had seen the missing children between 3 and 4 p.m. the previous afternoon. They could add nothing to what Jimerson had already told us. 3.30 a.m. was still raining hard. We drove back to South Peoria Street and sat in the car. The lights were still burning in the homes of the missing youngsters, the Griswolds and the Sperrys. Jimerson asked us in for coffee again. This time we accepted. We went in and sat around the kitchen table. Glenn Chandler and Stendhal from Homicide, Lieutenant Barker, Ben and myself. Jimerson's wife made the coffee. There wasn't much talking. You want more coffee? Hmm? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Miss Jimerson. That. Thank you. You want some more? No, thanks. It's fine. You want some more coffee? You got enough there? Sure, Lieutenant. Plenty. Go ahead. Right. Fill the sugar bowl, will you, Amy? Empty. There isn't any more. You never do things right. I told you to get some at the store today. You told me? Yeah, that's all right, Jimerson. Never use it anyway. Thanks. Never do anything right. All right, Amy, go to bed. She's a little upset. Not feeling too well. Well, I guess we better be going, Jimerson. Thanks. No, that's all right, Sergeant. She didn't mean you. It's this whole thing, I guess. Got everybody on edge. There's still a chance they may be all right. How do we explain the bag of groceries we found back in the hills? And the dog. If anybody's hurt those kids, we'll take care of him. Right here in this neighborhood, he'll get what's coming to him. Somebody at your back door. Oh, yes, I'll be. Sergeant Friday here? Yes, he's here. Come on in. Uh, Sergeant. Hi, Tom. Hi. What do you got? Mr. Griswold, Joe. Says he'd like to have you come over and talk to him. Figures he'll make his wife feel better, all broken up. Sure. Come on, Ben. We'll be over at the Griswolds, Lieutenant. All right. Thank you for the coffee, Jimerson. Not at all. If you get a chance, tell Griswold how sorry everybody is. We'll help all we can. Sure. Bad night. Yeah. Did you check by the Sperry's house, Tom? Mm-hmm. Mother's trying to get a little sleep. Father's still sitting up. There he is, by the window. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, this is the Griswold home. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah. They're going to ask questions. What are we going to tell them? I don't know. I could be all right. Kids do funny things sometimes. Maybe, but they don't murder their pet dog. Like a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, the police officer comes to realize that there's only so much that can be learned from his books. Time and experience make up the rest. The police manual contains no stock answers for the grieving wife who has just lost a husband in an auto accident, no firm but polite reply to the belligerent motorist handed a traffic tag, no words of reassurance for distraught parents of missing girls, ages 11 and 7. Whether it's trapping criminals or comforting parents, you find the right answer the hard way. There isn't any other way. We sat and talked with the Griswolds for a full hour. We didn't tell them about the dog or the bag of groceries. Until the fate of the two little girls was definitely decided, we figured giving them the information would serve no purpose except to add to their worries. Five minutes past 5 a.m., almost a full hour until daylight, it was still raining. George, maybe the officers would like some breakfast. Before they leave. No, thank you kindly, Miss Griswold. We had some sandwiches about an hour ago. Sure I can't fix you something? No trouble. No, sir. Thanks, anyway. Thanks. Terrible night. Rain. Now, now, Helen, just... Just a little while longer. We'll, we'll find the girls. It'll be daylight soon. Um, Miss Griswold, some of your neighbors tell us that there were two strangers here in the neighborhood this afternoon. Yes. But that was earlier. Mrs. Nelson next door and I were talking about it. One was a gardener looking for work. The other one was selling books. What time were they around, ma'am? Book sales on zero about noon. The gardener about two o'clock. Mm-hmm. How is your daughter about strangers? Does she make friends easily? No, no, not at all. Thelma's very careful about that. But she'd never go with a stranger, I'm sure of it. Why do you ask that question, Sergeant? I... You found out something? No, sir. No, we haven't. It's just a routine check, that's all. Can't understand it. And girls. Out in all this rain, something must have happened. I know. Now, now, Helen, you've been doing fine. Don't let down now. Joe. Hmm? Chief Brown's car just pulled up outside. Thanks, Tom. Ben? Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Griswold. Ms. Griswold. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I... Here, let, let me show you the door. We'll meet at the end of Sanchez Drive, Mr. Griswold, about 6 a.m. Should be light enough by then. Oh, all right. Oh, uh, Sergeant, there is a chance, isn't there? The girls are all right. There's a good chance. You try not to worry. Come on, Ben. Press it. Mm. Uh, Tom, you want to check with Barker again and see if any of his men have a line on the two men here in the neighborhood yet? Right. If you want us, we'll be in Thad Brown's car. All right, Sergeant. What time you got, Joe? Uh, 20 to 6. It's getting light now. Yeah. Let's get out of this rain. Gentlemen, you look a little wet. I could stand a dry pair of shoes. Still no trace of the kids? You heard about the dog and the bag of groceries. Yeah. Nothing else since then? No. It'll be light in a couple of minutes, and we can start searching the hills again. I ordered up another detail of men to help. They're parked up on Sanchez Drive. Captain Elliott's with them. Good. We can use all the help we can get. That's rough terrain. There's a lot of ground to cover up there. Yes, you talk to everybody in the neighborhood. Yeah, parents too. They help you much? Well, they told us there were two strangers in the neighborhood before the girls disappeared. We're having them checked out. Yeah. Griswold thinks the kids would be safe on that count. Says his daughter's afraid of strangers, never goes near them. Mm-hmm. 
How much area did you cover in the hills last night? About a full mile, wouldn't you say, Ben? Mm-hmm. Starting from Sanchez Drive straight back into the brush. It wasn't too thorough. Not enough men, not enough light. Yeah, you got plenty of both right now. Ten minutes past 6 a.m., Tuesday, October 28th. The search of the Sunset Hills area was resumed. 150 officers spread out over a two-square-mile area with orders to probe every foot of ground. With them were almost 50 volunteers from the neighborhood. The rain settled to a cold, steady downpour. The mud was ankle-deep. 8.30 a.m., no sign of the missing youngsters. 10.30, still no sign. Search went on. A neighborhood restaurant owner sent out five-gallon jugs of hot coffee for members of the searching party. After six continuous hours combing the hill, still no results. Chief Brown, Ben, and I went to the car for a cup of coffee and a cigarette. It's got me beat. Those kids wanted off the head to come in this direction. Well, they couldn't have headed toward town. Somebody would have noticed them, sure. Yeah. No leads at all on that APB you sent out? Two. They both fizzled. Youngsters up in those hills someplace. Gotta be. You two ready? Yeah. Let's go. Sure doesn't figure. Two square miles. We've been over it twice. We'll go over it again. Find them. Thelma Griswold, age 11. Barbara Sperry, age 7. Tuesday, October 28th, 2 p.m. They were still missing. Another detail of men from Metropolitan Division were dispatched to aid in the hunt. The daily newspapers played the story across the front page. Wire services bulletined the news across the country. Radio newscasters covered the story at the scene. On South Peoria Street, the two mothers sat in their homes and waited. The search went on. It stopped raining. Did you cover that patch of underbrush over there, Joe? Yeah. Watch it. Yeah. 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 I'm tired. Oh, yeah. Let's swing up this way. Right. Anything? No, nothing. All right, come on. Almost 2.30. Yeah. Too much coffee. Sour stomach. Me too. You got a cigarette? I'm out. Oh, here. Thanks. Preston, what do you got? What is it? They found him. They found the kid. Come on. Watch it, Ben. Bad spot here. Yeah, it's slippery. Thelma Griswold had brown hair and brown eyes. About four feet, six inches tall. She had a bunch of wildflowers in her hands. Barbara Sperry had blonde hair and blue eyes. She held a bunch of wildflowers, too. Friday? Chief? Who found them? Jemerson, some of the neighbors. Wow. Dear God. Preston? Yes, sir? Uh, get something, cover him up. Yes, sir. Come on. Yeah. Been a cop 32 years and never seen anything like that. I hope I never do again. Must have been a maniac. Had to be. The law is kind, depraved. Anybody call the crime lab? Yeah, the area's been cleared. Family's been notified? Not yet. I'll have to tell them. Do you want to come along? No, that wouldn't be any good. Two lives, what can you say? Whoever did it ran up a big bill. They're going to pay it. Listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. 
Five minutes after the bodies were discovered, the hunt for the psychopathic killer was underway. Lee Jones and his crew from the crime lab arrived and took pictures of everything that could possibly have a bearing on the crime. Physical evidence was hard to find. The heavy rain had destroyed any possible chance there might have been of finding footprints. When the crew from the crime lab was finished, the coroner arrived and took the bodies to the county morgue for autopsy. An immediate roundup of all known sexual psychopaths in the area was ordered. They were taken into homicide for questioning. So were the people from the South Peoria Street neighborhood whom we had talked with previously. The questioning went on all through the night. Together with a half a dozen officers from homicide detail, we narrowed down the field. Wednesday, October 29th, 7 a.m., we checked in with Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. Must be tired. Got a few hours sleep last night. Could use a few more. Sorry, we have to keep moving on this. You see the papers this morning? Yeah, they're like everybody else, crying too late. Someday people are going to learn you don't fool with these degenerates. You take precautions or you get the consequences. There's no in-between. There's usual talk going around town. It's supposed to be all our fault, letting the psychos run loose. No, we don't make the laws, we enforce them. Until we get something to work with, laws with teeth in them, these atrocities are going to go on. Nobody seems to care. We pick them up, they serve a few days, pay a fine, and they waltz out of here. Nobody cares. Sure, pity them. Don't cure them. Nature played a trick on them. Feel sorry for them until they kill a kid. It's not a firm law to cover them as they are. We have to wait till they murder somebody. We've got a better law for mad dogs. We don't let them run loose till they bite somebody. Those two little girls ought to prove something. How are the parents making up? What you might expect. Shocked, hysterics. Excuse me. Brown speaking. Who? Uh, Senderman. Chandler. They finished questioning that bunch we brought in yesterday. Oh, Chief. Ben, Joe. How many possibles, Glenn? None. Four we had left established airtight alibis. We checked the registrations, gave them their releases. Where does that leave us? We start from scratch. I don't think so, Chief. You got a hunch? A little better than that, Joe. I'm sold. What do you mean? You said the parents told you the little girls were afraid of strangers, wouldn't go near them. Yeah, try. We got the same reactions from some of the neighbors we talked to the day before yesterday. Yeah. Now we find out that all the known psychos in the area are clear, perfect alibis. When you figure the killer couldn't have been a stranger to the little girls. That's right. There were only two strangers in the whole neighborhood the day the girls disappeared, the gardener and the salesman, and both of them have been checked and cleared. Mm-hmm. As far as we know, the little girls wouldn't have gone that far up in the hills alone of their own accord, and they wouldn't have gone with a stranger. They had to be lured there and by someone they knew. Any ideas? Could have been one of the neighbors. No, we checked every possible out there, Glenn. We questioned him a half a dozen times. So have I. There's one that might fit. Who's that? Claude Jimerson. Glenn Chandler had been a veteran homicide officer before Ben or I joined the department. He was tall, quiet, and reserved. He had a good reason for everything he did, for everything he thought. The three of us sat down and tried to put the pieces together. Number one, Chandler uncovered a point that Ben and I had missed completely. Jimerson and his wife were not close friends of either the Sperry family or the Griswolds. For a near stranger, he showed an extraordinary interest in the welfare of the children after they disappeared. Number two, Ben and I discovered that Jimerson's wife had an eight-year-old boy by a previous marriage. The child did not live with them. Mrs. Jimerson told Chandler that her husband had been cruel to the boy. She refused to elaborate. Number three, Jimerson was the last person to see the children alive. Number four, the bodies of the children had been well hidden in the underbrush. Jimerson found them. Number five, Jimerson had bent over backwards to make friends with the investigating officers right from the start. As any veteran officer can tell you, that's not the usual attitude. At 8.30 a.m., Chandler, Ben, and I left the office. We spent the day digging back 15 years into Jimerson's life. We got back to the office just after midnight. Thursday, October 30th, 10 a.m., we checked in. Okay, Joe, already. 
Thanks. Come on, Ben. Yeah. Morning, Mr. Jimerson. Oh. How are you, Sergeant? Glad to see you. Sit down. Sorry to bother you again. Not at all. Glad to help. Anything new turn up? Did you kill those two little girls? That's a funny thing to ask. Of course not. You know that. We ask everybody the same thing. Hope you're not offended. Oh, you kind of surprised me. I didn't know. Did you kill those little girls? I don't understand. I told you no. Of course not. It's a stock question. Routine. Did you kill them? Now look, Sergeant. How many times do I have to tell you no? Sorry. You don't have any children, do you? No, we don't. No stepchildren? No. Why? Before you moved out to South Peoria Street, you and the wife lived out in West L.A., didn't you? Kelton Avenue? Oh, yes. How'd you know? You recall a Mary Gibbs out there? Gibbs? No. Six-year-old girl? You were charged with molesting her. That was back in 1944. They were crazy. They never proved it. Before Kelton Avenue, you lived in Santa Monica on 10th Street. Is that right? Yes. It was an eight-year-old girl. Donna Honrath? That kid lied, too. She asked me to fix her doll buggy. I never went near her. What about your stepson? Why isn't he living with you? Why did your wife send him to live with her sister? Amy's crazy. I never harmed the boy. We didn't get along, that's all. It got on my nerves. You've had four jobs in the past five years. What were they? I don't know what you're talking about. You were a janitor at a grammar school down the south end of town, then a gardener at a children's playground, then you were a shoe salesman, children's shoes, then you worked at another grammar school. What does all this mean, anyway? What are you getting at? Have you ever been in jail? Once. Six months, there was some trouble. What kind of trouble? I didn't know what I was doing. I was drinking. I didn't mean to bother the kid. Well? That's all, Jimerson. Routine questioning. You can go now. Oh, thanks. I hope you haven't got the wrong idea about me. I like children, that's all. Sure. Thanks for coming in. Well, not at all, Sergeant. Anything I can do to help? Well, goodbye. Say, Jimerson, I almost forgot. There is one thing. Oh? Since you're the one who found the little girls, we'll have to have you identify the bodies. It won't take long. Uh, morgue's just across the street, up the bluff. Well, I'd like to help you, but I got an appointment. All you have to do is look at them. Won't take you long. Come on, let's go. I'd like to help, Sergeant, but I don't take these things while I get sick. We'll make it fast. Out this way. Raining again. I'm sorry, Sergeant. I don't think I'd better go. Just identify him, that's all. Won't take a minute. Maybe if we had a drink before we went in. You can have one after. Watch it, there's heavy traffic. Yeah, lights change. We'll have to wait. I need a drink. I can't go in that place without a drink. You'll be all right. Okay, let's go. Morgue's up this way. I can't look at him. I get sick. Don't make me. Nothing to it. You'll see. Here we are. Went down the driveway. It's a shortcut. This way. Hi, Joe. Can I help you? Yeah, Archie. Those little girls. Thelma Griswold. Barbara Sperry. Oh, yeah. This way. Please. Right here, Joe. Thelma Griswold. Uncover. Jimerson? Yeah. 
this one. Barbara. Little one. You killed him, didn't you? The dog jumped at me. She started to yell. Put my hand over her mouth. Then the other kid. I hit them. Too hard. They cried. Joe? That's all. All right. Huh? Let's go. It wasn't my fault. I like kids. I didn't understand. Neither do I, mister. Come on. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 18th, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 87, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Claude Willis Jimerson was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. On April 23rd at 10 a.m., he was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton. You're tuned for the stars on NBC. A particularly disturbing Dragnet, Claude Jimerson, child killer, from NBC in the winter of 1950, and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog, Kellen Quigley, and Mike Kidd are the audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Earlier tonight... I mentioned that our attention had been drawn to the significance of today's date, National Maritime Day, by our listener Susan in Seattle, Washington. She had a specific request that we're going to honor right now. Susan asked us to play an episode of Men at Sea, one of the best of the patriotic series from World War II. It was produced in cooperation with the War Shipping Administration, which was hopeful these radio dramas would inspire able hands to enlist in the Merchant Marine. And the shows were nothing if not inspiring. We've played this particular example here on the big broadcast, as had Ed Walker before us. It comes from just a few days after the Japanese surrender, and it recounts an episode that was well known to all Americans at the time, one of the most moving and meaningful events of World War II, the sacrifice of the four chaplains. Here's their story, titled, The Bid Was Four Hearts, as it was dramatized on August 19, 1945, over NBC on the series Men at Sea. Men at Sea. Citizens, I'm going to tell you a story. A story of four American chaplains. Four chaplains who, in the early hours of a February morning made a strong and beautiful bid. Chaplain Clark Poling, north. I'll pass. Chaplain John Washington, east. I'll bid uh, two clubs. Chaplain George Fox, south. I'll pass. 
Chaplain Alexander Good, West. I'll bid four hearts. Four men. Two Protestant ministers, one Jewish rabbi, one Catholic priest. Four men made a bid, and a grateful nation will remember this night and for all time that the bid was four hearts. In the spirit of this day of worship, the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the War Shipping Administration, presents as a special chapter on Men at Sea, an adaptation based upon Captain Elwood C. Nance's book, Faith of Our Fighters, written by Father Timothy Mulvey. The play bears the title, The Bid Was Four Hearts. You were sleeping those cold February nights, citizens. You were sleeping quietly. And while you were sleeping, citizens, the big gray shadows were out on the water. Convoy, they call it. Convoy moving in the night, carrying men and material for the United Nations. Convoy stepping cautiously over gray waters that are treacherous with submarines. Below the deck of the troop transport Dorchester, four chaplains are sitting in officers' quarters. Then, suddenly, there's a knock on the door. Uh, is this the chaplain's quarters? Well, step right in, Jimmy. Boy, it's nice and warm down here. You know, if you ask me, chaplains, this North Atlantic ain't so hot. I'm standing up there on the deck, see, looking for submarines. And what do I get? What do you get, Jimmy? I get me nose froze. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, gentlemen, I'd like you to meet our new orderly. Jimmy, this is Chaplain Good. Uh, how do you do? Glad to know you, Jimmy. And this is Chaplain Fox, and over here, Chaplain Pauling. How are you, Jimmy? Glad to know you. Yeah, pleased to meet you. Uh, oh, uh, I got the order all fixed up nice, Father Washington, but what I want to know now is uh, who follows who in the church services? Well, I'm saying mass at 7 o'clock, Jimmy. Oh, I know that, Father, but... Well, what I want to know is, does the Jewish service follow you, or does the Protestant? Well, uh, perhaps Chaplain Pauling might explain. If you don't mind, Jimmy, you can arrange the order for Protestant services after Chaplain Washington says Mass. Yeah, I get you. Is that agreeable to you, Chaplain Good? Perfectly all right with me. I'm holding my service at six, if it doesn't make any difference to Chaplain Fox. Oh, not at all. Uh, now, let me get this straight. In other words... Uh, chaplains, first is the Jewish service at six o'clock with no cross and the altar turned around, right? Right. And then it's the Catholic service at seven o'clock uh, with the cross and the altar turned around the other way, right? Right. And then it's the Protestant service with the... Uh, uh, let me see now. Uh, the altar turned around the other way again, right? And, and then... Uh, you know, Chaplains, this would be a heck of a lot easier for me if you should only get together sometime. <laughs> the convoy moved steadily to the north. And now that they were approaching Greenland, the escort destroyers were beginning to tighten their screaming lines. The destroyers were getting nervous now, and a certain skipper was getting nervous too. Black as pitch out there tonight, Jackson. Yes, sir. Any other reports? You mean about the submarines? Yes. No, sir, nothing. But we're running into high seas, sure, sir. Sure, sure, we're running into high seas. What did you expect with a wind like that? Let me see the chart. Uh, here you are, sir. 
Hmm. Getting pretty close to Greenland. Yes, sir. But not close enough to suit me. What do you mean, sir? Well, right now, Jackson, we're riding deep in Germany's North Atlantic submarine zone. And when you've got a wind like this in your face, a submarine can do funny things. And these were the sounds that night. The large sounds of wind and waves. The small, friendly sounds of lifeboats swinging on the davits. The muffled, gray sound of boots keeping vigil on the bridge. And then the night gets very quiet on the North Atlantic. It gets, uh, gets very quiet in a dark cabin. A chaplain has time to lie in his bunk and remember. Chaplain Poling was remembering that night. Chaplain Poling, they call me. Chaplain. Somehow, in this dark room, the memory of that first fear comes back to me now. I remember how you looked at me, Dad, when I, your young minister, opened the door that day. What's the matter, Clark? Dad, I, I'm no good. I, I'm a failure. What's the trouble? A, a man's dying now, and I... I can't help it. Did you try? Yes, but I just couldn't help it. Maybe you tried too much, Clark. What do you mean? I mean, did you give God a chance? Well, I... I... No, you go on back, son. Go back to that man and remember, you're nothing but an instrument in God's hand. I'll never forget that, Dad. Never. An instrument in his hand. That's all you are, Clark Pauling. Dear God, help me always to be your instrument. And... And... Watch over Corky and... Thumper and Dad. Watch over Betty and all of us tonight. Four men in a room had time for remembering that night, and always memories ran straight to home. A young rabbi was remembering that night. Chaplain Good, they call me. Funny. Lying here in this room, I wonder why. And yet I don't wonder why. I know the reason. I suppose the reason could go back to a day in French class. I'm thinking of you now, Teresa. My lovely wife. I remember how you looked that first day I spoke to you. Back at Easter. We were just kids. Mind if I sit next to you, Miss Flax? No. I uh, forgot my French book. Thought maybe I might look on with someone. I see. This is the second time you forgot your French book, Mr. Good. I know. I... I might forget it tomorrow, too. Yes. You were very young. 
But even then, Teresa, I knew I wanted to be near you. Always. I wanted to be near everything that's good. I wanted to be happy. Yes, I... I guess that's it in a nutshell. Wanting to be happy. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone. Oh, God, my father. Look down on us tonight. Look down on Rosalie and Ruth and Ethel and my wife, Therese. And God, help us all. Help all men to find ultimate happiness. Yes, there was time for remembering aboard a troop transport. And while men were remembering, the convoy was moving north and there was silence. The silence that always returned in the night and left the man alone with his remembering. Chaplain Fox was remembering that night. Chaplain Fox, they call me. They weren't too sure of me the first time they saw me. <laughs> I remember how they looked when they asked me the question. So, you're a Methodist minister? Yes, sir. Hmm. George Fox, born in Lewiston, Pennsylvania. Nineteen hundred, is it? Yes, sir. Hmm. Born nineteen hundred. Well, now, don't you think you're a bit, well, old for army service? I don't think so, sir. Quite a rigorous life, you know. <laughs> yes, I suspect that, sir. And I suppose you also know that a chaplain's life will be far different from, well, shall we say, the congenial surroundings of a parish in Vermont? I quite understand, sir. I wonder if you quite understand. I think I understand war, if that's what you mean. <laughs> you do understand war? Yes, sir. Oh, so many people think they do. I was engaged in active duty with the 2nd Division in World War One. Wounded in combat. Oh. Received the Purple Heart. Well... Silver Star. My. Quite a girl with palms, sir. Mm, uh, yes, yes, with palms. I also have a son who's a Marine in this war, sir. Oh, I. Of course, yes. I think I do understand war. Uh, naturally. <coughs> naturally. <laughs> you laughed when I told you that, Mary Elizabeth. Yes. I'd like to see the sun shining again in Gilman, Vermont. Lord, I'd love to see it again. Sunshine, the hills. Mary Elizabeth and Wyatt, and you, my wife. Yes, it'll be a great day, Lord, when this old fox can come home to all his cubs again. You were sleeping those cold February night, citizen. But while you were sleeping, there were hearts that were remembering and eyes that were watching. And the big gray ships were still moving north. And the slow procedure on the high seas was being written on the log. But there were some things that were not written on the log. Jimmy, the chaplain's orderly, was chiming candlesticks that afternoon when somebody knocked. Yeah, come in. Oh, uh, 
What can I do for you, Sergeant? I uh, was looking for one of the chaplains. Uh, the chaplains is busy. What do you want? Well, uh, it's uh, it's about a letter I wrote to my girlfriend. Your, your girlfriend? Yeah. Well, for crying out loud, what do you want the chaplains for? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh... Oh, uh, I get you. You mean, uh, you want a little help, sort of? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't know spelling so good. Well, now, why didn't you say so in the first place? Here, give me the letter. I'll give it to your care for you, Sarge. Uh, here you are. I, uh, happen to know a little something about this sort of thing, uh, me being an orderly. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, where is it? Uh, on the other page. Oh, Oh, yeah, here we are. Dear Toots. It... Toots, Sergeant? Is that her name? Well, uh, that's what I call her. Sergeant? You know that Toots is no name for a self-respectable dame. She was baptized, wasn't she? Well, I, uh, I guess so. Well, baptism is a sacrament. In case you don't know that, Sergeant. Yeah? So, uh, call her by her baptismal name, see? Okay. Okay. Now, uh, what is her baptismal name? Um, Marcella. Ah, that's a nice name, Sergeant. Yeah, I'll write it down for you. M A R. Just for the fun of it, Sergeant, how would you spell Marcella? Huh? Oh, you, you got me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dear Toots. How are you feeling? I'm fine. I hope you are the same. About getting married when I get back... You gonna marry this dame, Sarge? You bet I am when I get back. But is she a good girl? Good? What do you well, mean? I don't I... know what I mean. Sure she's good. What do you think? Well, Why, well, I, 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 I... All right, all right. Keep your shirt on. I'm only trying to tell you, Sergeant, that the only kind of girl we're coming home to is a good girl. The chaplains will tell you the same thing. Chaplains will tell you. The chaplains told you many things. And in the quiet hours, a chaplain has time to tell himself something. Chaplain Washington may call me. The altar boys call me Father John. (laughs) There was a time when I thought I'd never quite get used to being called Father. And there were times when I wondered what it meant to be a priest. What has it meant to be a priest? Well, being a priest means many things. It means you, Lord. The eyes and lips and mouth of you. Speaking again those words over bread and wine. That's my mass. My priesthood is you, Lord. In the long hours of the confessional. That's the way you wanted it, Lord. Whose sins you shall loose. That's what you said. Well, I have loosed. I have liberated. Oh, my good God. I, a sinner, have lifted my hand in absolution. Yes, it's many things being a priest. It's the babies I've washed clean with your baptism. The boys and girls I have fed with the bread of life. The young men and women I have made one in the lasting bonds of your marriage. 
the weary heads and hands I have touched with the strong oils of your extreme unction. Oh, gentle Christ, thanks for all this. And especially thanks for her. Mom, I see your lovely face in this dark room. And I'm remembering a morning long ago in the kitchen. I was trying to break the news to you. John, what seems to be troubling you? Mom, would it make much difference if... If, I mean... <laughs> you mean you want to go away to be a priest? Yes. Sure. And didn't I know it all the while? Well, it'll mean a lot of work and worry for you, Mom. I mean, all the kids at home and everything, and... Well... John... What greater blessing could I work and worry for than to see you someday? John, I used to dream about seeing a son of mine, a priest. I dreamed. Oh, I guess I dreamed it a thousand times or more. Even when you were that small. And I was thinking... Then it would be a great day, sitting there with your father in the front pew, with the candles lit and the incense floating like a white cloud over your head, with the altar boys in their red caps, and the grand organ filling the church. I was thinking. That would be a great day when I could look up and say, There he is. There he is. My own Father John. That's the way you said it, Mom. Oh, God, look over a little house tonight on South 12th Street. Look over my mother and all mothers. And you, Mary, my heavenly mother, help me to be a good priest. cautiously all that day against heavy seas. And when night settled down again on the North Atlantic, four chaplains were tired. So they relaxed around a table. They said casual things. It's your deal, Paulie. They weren't thinking about the gray waters now. I'll pass, Washington. They were merely looking at cards. I'll bid uh, two clubs. And making small, pleasant calculations. Yes, I'll pass. And then... Hmm, let me see... I think I'll bid four hearts. Stand by. All hands alert. Submarines contacted. Gun crews in position. All hands prepare for emergency. Stand by. You heard the words, stand by. You forget a bridge game. You forget the overturned chair, the sweater you left lying on the edge of your bunk. You forget the hundred details like the letter you were writing and the shoe you were shining. Yes, 
You may even forget your life jacket. You're just one among hundreds who ran out on the cold deck. And you stood there, staring out into the dark, waiting. Doesn't look so good, Jackson. No, sir. How many did they say? They just said submarine. Must be a pack of them. Gun crews ready? Yes, sir. The men are lined along the deck waiting. Yes, waiting. That's the part I don't like. What's that, sir? The waiting. It's like being in a dark room. You don't know whether you're going to be hit in the head or the ribs. The bearing is 035, sir. Looks like the ribs, perhaps. Could be any angle. In a wind like this, those subs could patrol us for 48 hours and call the shot at any angle. What's our position? We're out of line, sir. Oh, I thought so. What are we making? Three knots. Roughly, sir. Three knots. Running out of formation at three knots. You know what this means, Jackson? I'm afraid I do, sir. The Dorchester is going to be easy pickings if any sub decides to operate tonight. So you waited, like a man in the dark room. You kept staring out over the rail into the dark. You just couldn't believe that out there, under those wild, cold waters, men were waiting for you, timing you, measuring you. You waited an hour. You waited two hours. Then, gradually, you relaxed. You breathed again. You were normal again. After all, someone could be mistaken, could be a false alarm. You took one more look over the rail. Then you walked slowly back to the stateroom, watched some of the fellows for a minute, walked over to your bunk, sat down, ran your finger through your hair, searched for a cigarette, found it, lit it, lay back on your bunk. Yes, probably was a false alarm. Torpedo! Like a live, bubbling, murderous fish, it was coming. Stand by! Like a tiger shark, it had you spotted. Here it comes! Here it comes! All right, citizens. Let it be said, quietly. Let it be said without the noise and confusion of men jumping over the side of the stricken ship. Let it be said without the shouting of boys as they watch the cold sea coming up to meet them in the dark. Let us say only, the Dorchester was gaping with a wound from which he would never heal. Right now, it's getting more quiet. The lifeboats are pulling slowly away. The Dorchester is settling slowly. Four chaplains, trapped in their life jackets, are standing on the deck of that stricken ship. Are you okay, Pauling? Fine, Washington. How about you, Rabbi? So far, so good. You, Fox? I'm all right. Well, she's going fast. All the lifeboats are gone. We got most of the fellas over the side. No. Wait a minute. No, I can't die. Look at this kid. I can't die. I can't die. Where's your life jacket? I lost it. I can't die. Chaplains, I can't. You lost his life jacket. Look, over there. Three more kids without their life jackets. Son, listen, son, I, I want you to pay attention to me. Yes, sir. Can you swim, son? No, sir. None of us can swim, sir. We're afraid, sir. Afraid to go over the side. I see. And no life jackets. Well, chaplains? Yes, you're right. Of course. It's the only way. I'll take this, lad. Father, if you're in pulling... And this boy's mine. 
Here, son. Quickly. Stand up straight. Now. All right. All right now, lad. Raise your arms. Now higher. A little bit higher. You're going to be all right. You've got to be all right. tonight, citizens. Will we be honest with ourselves for one moment this night? Will we search our individual hearts and come up with the beautiful answer? The answer we know is right. Will we sit at the broad table of this, our beloved land, and play the game according to the rules of him who is the eternal God and father of all mankind? What say you, player on the north? What say you, player on the south? And what say you, players on the east and west? Will we look tonight into the eyes of our fellow man, whoever he may be, and bid a portion of old pride or stale prejudice or ancient hate? Or will we remember that night of February 3rd, 1943, when a ship went down 90 miles south of Greenland? Will we remember that moment when the ship was poised for the final plunge? That moment... When the miracle of man's love, his fellow man, converted her slippery deck once and forever into a great altar from which four men offered their gallant souls to God, will we? Hostilities are ended. No longer is the sea a thing of menace as it was on that bitter night when the transport Dorchester met her fate. But if men at sea are no longer called upon to risk the sacrifice of life itself, the need for men to man our great merchant fleet, even though peace has come, is just as great, if not indeed greater than ever. The need is especially acute for experienced officers and seamen, especially mates, engineers, and ABs, men who have been to sea before and have the skill and knowledge which comes with experience. If you are such a man, there's a vitally important job for you in the Merchant Marine today. You can help bring released prisoners home from all parts of the world. If you can qualify, you're urged to write or wire collect to Merchant Marine, Washington, D.C., giving your name, address, and rating. If you're accepted, you'll receive standby pay immediately and be furnished transportation to the port of assignment. Get back to sea and bring the boys home sooner. <laughs> 
Tonight's story, entitled The Bid Was Four Hearts, was dramatized by Father Timothy Mulvey from portions of the book by Captain Elwood C. Nance, Faith of Our Fighters. It was presented as a special chapter in our series Men at Sea, a public service brought to you in cooperation with the War Shipping Administration by the National Broadcasting Company and its independent affiliated stations. The cast included Guy Sorrell as narrator and Bess McCammon, Frank Behrens, Bob Griffin... Frank Butler, Jack Lloyd, Marvin Marks, John McBride, Arthur Cole, Tom Hoyer, Gene Gillespie, Julian Noah, Rock Rogers, and Tommy Hughes. The music was by Felix McGuire, and the production was directed by Howard Keegan. This is the National Broadcasting Company. The bid was four hearts from the series Men at Sea, four days after VJ Day in August of 1945. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. As usual, we're going to stretch our theme just a bit this evening with a radio drama called Sea Legs, but it really has nothing to do with the sea or with National Maritime Day. It's set in outer space and it comes from the science fiction series X-1. This particular story stars the wonderfully accomplished actor William Redfield. In addition to dozens of radio roles, Mr. Redfield appeared in such famous Broadway productions as the original Our Town in the 1930s, when he was just 11 years old, and Richard Burton's Hamlet in the 1960s. His most famous screen portrayal came the year before his death, as one of the patients in the 1975 Academy Award-winning One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Here, from the 1st of May in 1956, is Sea Legs, an episode of NBC's X-1. Countdown for blastoff. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents... X minus one... Tonight, the Frank Quatroki story, Sea Legs. I stood in line at the Grav 1 desk with the old Knox service record and tapes in my hand and waited for the board processing clerk to speak. The clerk seemed utterly indifferent to the excitement of the men in the line. I wondered how long he'd been out here on this godforsaken Zone 5 planet. Next. Name? Robert Craig. Occupation? Flight officer. Destination? Earth. Earth? 
Anything wrong with that? Well, I guess not. How long since you've been on Earth, Mr. Craig? Well, I, uh, I've never been there. My parents left during the second colonization of Cassiopeia. I was born there. Have you ever been in a gravity system? Oh, just briefly. Under drugs, of course. You'll have to go through the gravity conditioning course. Yes, so I was told. Proceed to the airlock chamber on your right and follow the robot's orders. Good luck. You may need it. Next. I went into the chamber and stripped off my clothing while the robot droned its orders. Remove all metal objects from your person. Place them in the plastic tube at your left. Now stand underneath the decontamination tube. Depress the button with your right foot. This is all. Proceed through the green door to the psychometric section. Please respond quickly to orders, and so do not impede the progress of others. Next, please. The door to the psychometric section led into a pleasant but cold-looking room with a single metal desk. A man with a balding high forehead sat behind the desk. Mr. Craig? Have a seat. I'm Captain Wyandotte, the psychological officer. Nice to meet you. Yes, well, let's see your records. Hmm. You list your destination as terror. You, uh, you're certain you wish to go to Earth? Of course I'm certain. You're somewhat aggressive, Mr. Craig. Look, I've been standing in line taking orders from clerks and robots for six hours. Every time somebody sees that I'm headed for Earth, I get the fish eye. Are they jealous or what? I hardly think so. You've been a spaceman for 16 years, Mr. Craig. You've been zooming around in the countergraph systems and the outer galaxies without any restraints or self-discipline. Have you ever spent six weeks strapped into a grav seat on a space rocket, Captain? There's a good deal of self-discipline involved in that. I think you'll find things on Terra require a different kind of self-discipline, Mr. Craig. Well, I'm pretty much aware of what it's like. Are you? I suppose you've heard all the popularizations in the tapezines. <laughs> well, Mr. Craig, let me give you a word of caution. It's going to be vastly different. I'm prepared for that, Captain. Can we get going? Naturally. You will undergo a 20-day conditioning course. 20 days? Mr. Craig, you've been in space 16 years. Your body is conditioned to a normal state of free fall, or at best to acceleration. The return to gravity would kill you if you weren't prepared for it. All right, what do I do? Report to Centrifugal Department. Here are your papers. Oh, and Mr. Craig. Yes? Centrifugal is a rather trying ordeal. If during the course of treatment you should change your mind about returning to Earth, you're free to do so. Thanks. I won't. I'd heard about centrifugal, but you can never really know about these things until you experience them. Four times a day, we were whirled around until it seemed as if our insides were too big for our bodies. On the twelfth day, it got to be too much for me. I was in the base hospital for five days. My roommate was an old space bum they'd brought in to die with a case of ruptured veins. His name was Charlie Brockman. How you feel, son? I'm pretty good, Charlie. You get discharged tomorrow, I hear. You gonna try it again? I guess so. Why? Hmm. Only way I'll ever get to Earth. You really want to go? That's right. You talked to anybody been there last ten years or so? 
No, you don't get to talk to many people from Earth in the galaxy. Were you ever there? Me? Now, what would an old space bum like me be doing on Terra? Well, I just thought maybe... I done most of my time in Zone 5. Out there, you get to thinking anybody who stays less than 80 light years from Earth is a landlubber. Yeah, I used to think the same. Then I took the exam for a job back on Earth, and I passed it. I used to think I'd like to go back. But space was exciting, you know. New and raw. It tugged at your guts, and it sent the blood rushing through your veins. But it was free. No bureaucrat ever lasted six months in Grav 5. Well, I had enough hitting atmospheres all over the universe, old man. Well, maybe you're right. Uh, lean over here, will you? Sure. Unbutton my pajama top, will you? Okay. There's a chain around my neck. Got a little message capsule on it. Oh, yeah, I got it. Do me a favor, huh? Take it with you when you go back to Terra. Uh, don't open it till you're on the ship. Okay, Charlie. And son. Yes? I lied to you. I have been back to Terra. I faked some papers and made a landing there six months ago. What are you doing back here? I had to leave in a hurry. Why? You'll find out, son. Good luck. Charlie died the next day. A few hours later, I was visited by Captain Wyandotte, the psych officer. How are you feeling, Craig? Okay. You still want to go back to Earth? Yes. You're completely sure you want to live out your life there to give up space service for it? Look, we've gone through this, Captain. Now, you tell me that spacemen don't settle down on Terra, yet you won't or you can't tell me why. All right, what's the pitch? Does the space service need men so badly that they have to make it impossible for us to go back? That, Mr. Craig, you will have to discover for yourself. You have my authorization to complete your condition and return to Earth as a private citizen. I wish you luck. You'll need all you can get. Somehow I managed to survive the torments for 18 days. I was ready to return to Earth. A month later, I descended from a huge intergalactic jet at Los Angeles Spaceport. I was dead tired from the trip. I checked in at the nearest inexpensive hotel. Uh, this is your room, sir. Uh, just uh, put the bags down, will you? I'll unpack myself. Uh, yes, sir. Just back from out of space, sir? Yeah, that's right. How could you tell? Sea legs. Sea legs? Well, the way you walk. You can tell when somebody's been in the low grav systems. Oh, uh, well, here. Oh, thanks, Mr. Craig. Uh, for another five units, I'll tell you where it is. Where what is? You know, the mic. Mic? Okay, make it three units. I won't hold you up. You mean a microphone? Yeah, that's right. They wanted to put screens in, but the boss convinced him there ain't any freedomites ever stay here. Freedomites? Not so loud. You want to get controlled? No. No. Here's the money. Where is it? It's in the bed illuminator. You can short it with a razor blade. Thanks. You uh, want any sensation tapes? What are they? You know, metal image tapes. Oh, boy, you've been away from Terra a long time. Wait a minute, before you go, son. Yeah? Where's the uh, minerals building? I have to report there for a job interview. Oh, that's in the government cluster. Fifth level at X in second. Thanks. I'll want breakfast about 8 o'clock. Well, I'll need your ISS units. My what? Your ration units. I don't have any ration units. You have your ident card? Look, I just got here an hour ago. Oh, 
But you better go see the Civil Control Board tomorrow. If you want to eat, that is. All right, where do I find the control board? Government cluster. But don't worry. If you don't find them, they'll find you. I went to sleep that night with the uneasy feeling that somebody was watching me. It had been a weird day. I hadn't exactly liked it. Well, I told myself, it figured that there'd be more formalities and rigmarole on Earth than there were out in the systems, especially at first. Still, I couldn't get the idea of the concealed microphone out of my mind. You may relax, Mr. Craig. You are Mr. Craig? Uh, yes, uh, <clears throat> Robert Craig. You aren't nervous, are you? No, no, no. This is uh, my first time before the control board, and... Well, it's my first time. Flight officer, huh? Somewhat unusual for a vigorous young man like yourself abandoning space service, isn't it? I don't know. Is it? Leaving something behind, Mr. Craig? No. You don't like this sort of affair, do you, Mr. Craig? Well, I'm afraid I don't quite see its necessity. I serve the intergalactic service well. My records prove it. It's enough impertinence, Mr. Craig. Answer the questions. You are a Terran... Yes. Where are your loyalties? I don't understand. Your first loyalties are to intergalactic, is that right? Is there a distinction? Do you wish to be held in contempt of this board? Of course not. And you'll confine your responses to simple yes answers. Now, Mr. Craig, we shall begin again. Please try to show restraint of emotion. You are here to petition for an identity card provisional code 2 type. You maintain that you've never been on Terra before. Indeed, you state that you've never had a political affiliation. Yes. What are your reactions to the latest acts of the Liberal Party? I have none. You do not condemn the Liberal Party? Well, I... Then you must favor it. I don't know anything about it. Now then, Mr. Craig. The import service report shows that you passed your test aboard your ship. You were enabled to accomplish this through night study. Yes. Yet you maintain in your application that you had considered the space service a career. I changed my mind. Oh, you changed your mind. I see. I see, too, that you have petitioned the board for a private means of conveyance. Why do you wish to own your own transportation vehicle? To make it easier to get around, I report to my job. And... What job? I passed the exam for the import service. I report today. Where are you living, Mr. Craig? At the Star Hotel. Very well. You'll wait outside in the waiting room until you're called again. I waited about two hours in the porcelainized waiting room of the Civil Control Board. Then I was called over to the clerk's desk at a small window. He stamped some cards for me. Craig. Here. Here's your stuff. Class one provisional ident card. Sign it and fingerprint it. Don't lose it. If you do, you'll be picked up by the control agent. I, uh, I petitioned for a class two card. You get a class one. This entitles you to maintain an apartment in the lower level of the Beverly Project. Here's your clothing ration. You'll have to turn in that leather flight jacket. No, wait a minute. I had this made on Chuan. Listen, I can remove the insignia. That is not the point. Your clothing ration is defined by law. There are no exceptions. 
This is your food ration. What's all this uh, medical stuff on the card? You are rationed fairly in accordance with your particular metabolism. Oh, you're kidding. I do not kid, Mr. Craig. What about a car? I asked to be allowed to buy a car. Let's see. Your petition to be permitted to purchase a private means of transportation is hereby denied. I walked out of the control board feeling like a man who has just come out of free fall into a hypergravity system. Instead of reporting to the import service for my initial job interview, I walked around the city. I don't know how long I walked, maybe an hour, maybe two. After a while, I came to the outskirts of old Los Angeles. There was a big fence around it and the usual signs. Radioactivity. Beware. It was just a pile of rubble and twisted girders. I looked at it for a while and then turned around and headed for the intergalactic freight office. So you figured you made a mistake. Yeah, that's right. You you don't hear much about Terra out there. And you want me to sign you back into Intergalactic? Yes. You got any character references? No, no, not here on Earth, but I can post a good-sized bond if they'll release my ISS unit. What's your rating? I can handle anything up to 15 G's acceleration on my old license. You got a Turan contract with import service, you said? I haven't started work yet. Look, kid... Uh, Mr. Craig, is it? How long you been on Earth? Two days. So you're a spaceman. Flight officer, ex-flight officer. You know how to navigate through four star zones and the asteroid belt thrown in. You got a license for 15 Gs, could get five more with a check flight. You got enough brains to pass the import senior rooter's exam. But you ain't got enough sense to come in out of the rain. We get guys like you every day. You're hot, you're big, you're raring to go. But you ain't gone nowhere. I'm listening. I don't know how you got here, Craig. Maybe you did quit honorable, or maybe you went and burned up a colony someplace. That would be in my records. The point is, it don't make any difference. Nobody leaves Terra without a permit. Nobody gets a permit to go back to space once he hits this old apple. Why not? They afraid somebody will tell what it's like? Oh, son, you got things to learn. One is you don't go shooting off your mouth. Another is, Terra's changed a lot since the radioactive wars. We're going places, doing things. Big places, big things. You've got to fit into that, kid. Move with it. Stick around. You've still got your sea legs. You're going to like it here. You can make a quick dollar and spend it quick, too. But you'd better smarten up. Or you'll finish scrubbing radioactive dust off girders. That's the story, huh? The whole story? That's it. Everything runs by a system. And, son, you can't buck the system. Yeah. I don't suppose there's any place around here a guy could get a quick drink. Oh, yeah, out at the end of Y Street. They got a little place you can buy in Acadian Taz. Pluto's, they call it. Thanks. Yeah, get it out of your system and then settle down. That's my advice. Thanks. So long. Get me the control agent. He just left here. He's on his way to the Pluto Cafe. Hey, waiter. 
Waiter, bring me another drink for the young lady. Now. Now then. Where were we? Well, I don't know. In fact, I still don't know why you're buying me free drinks. Huh. I told you I want somebody to talk to. You a purist? Or maybe you don't like the brand of sensation tapes they're peddling these days. No, you don't have a bad face, really, underneath the makeup. I mean, it's a little crooked, but it ain't bad, really. Thanks. Does me pretty good. Well, what's your name? Gloria. Oh, sure. Sure. Sure, I remember. Gloria! Maybe you had enough to drink. No, no. No, not yet. You know, I look around, I see all these people with their faces all froze up like plastic. And I feel like I got to know somebody or I go out of my mind. So what happens? Everybody is afraid. I mean, what happened? Whatever happened to freedom? Uh, what's the matter? Did I say something? What's, that? what's everybody so quiet about all of a sudden? Okay. Come with me. Yeah, well, who are you? Control board agent. Control... Hey, I wasn't with him. Honest, he just picked me up and brought me a drink and started shooting off his mouth. I wasn't with him. Let's go, Mac. Wait a minute. What for? You'll find that out. Come on. On your feet. Okay, okay. Carl, keep your hands off. I'll go with you. Everybody else just minds your own business. You, girlie. Yeah? Let's see your ident card. Here. You live at this address? Yeah. Alone? With my... My sister. Maybe some night you could go to a movie or something. We could spend some time getting acquainted. Yeah. Yeah, sometime. Good, I'll call you. Hey, I, I need my dent card back. I can't get rations without it. I'll keep it. Bring it back myself. Why don't you give the girl her card? No! Well, maybe you mind your own business. Let's go. You walk just a little in front of me. He was a big man. Maybe 250 pounds, and he shuffled when he walked. He'd hit me right across the right shoulder with a sort of rubber truncheon. Now it began to ache. Walking along a sort of back street. Everywhere in the universe there were such streets. Streets where you could find freedom in anonymity. A compromise between lawlessness and law. They are permitted by the authorities because it is necessary to have a place for those who are not permitted elsewhere. Okay, step into the doorway. Hurry up, you fool. We're being followed. Well, we're followed by who? Don't ask questions. Who's you told? Well, I have any right. You've got the right to get hit over the head unless you do what you're told. Now, quick. They're coming. In here. Hurry. Hey, who, who, who are they shooting at? You or me? Both of us. Down these steps. Stop! Stop or we'll fire! Through the door. Now, duck behind that pillar. Don't make a sound. You see them? Not a tray. Uh, come on. They've probably slipped out. Walk through the tunnel behind you. One false move and you're finished. Go on. Uh, 
From the direction of the tunnel, I guessed it was part of an old sewage system that led toward the ruined city. I don't know how long we walked, maybe an hour. Finally, we came to a small wooden door. Stop here. Okay, let's have it. What? What? Have what? The tube. I don't know what you mean. Our detectives picked it up on you the minute you got off the plane. You're carrying a radioactive message tube with a periodic emission signal. I'll need to have it before we can go any further. You mean the, uh, the tube that old Charlie gave me? Old Charlie? Yes, Charlie Brockman. The old spaceman who was in the hospital with me. Where is it? I don't know. I think it's in my pocket. I never even bothered to open it. Do it now. Let me see. Oh, yeah, here it is. Open it. It's empty. That's right. The message is in the tube itself. Identify our people by the radioactive pattern. Our people? You'll see. Come in. Make it fast. This the one? This is the one. Has he been drugged? He's had P.O.N. A massive dose at the Pluto. Good. Mr. Craig, my name's Cocteau. This is Mr. Brannigan. You're probably quite bewildered about all this. Let me clarify the situation. You're now in the headquarters of the Freedomites, underneath the radioactive part of old Los Angeles. Mr. Brannigan is not a control agent. He's one of our men. We've been watching you ever since we detected the message tube as your ship was approaching Earth. Now, wait a minute. You... You guys are Freedomites? That's right. You're pretty illegal, aren't you? Let's say our lives aren't worth a snap of your fingers if we're caught. All right, who are you? Where are you from? Most of us are from the same place you're from, outer space. Many of us have the same history you have. We shipped into Earth and became disillusioned and went to the intergalactic freight office to apply for a job. The man at the office, the man who made the speech about coming in out of the rain, is one of our agents. Aren't you taking a chance, telling me all this? Not at all. At the Pluto, you were given a massive dose of P.O.N. You won't remember anything that happened to you after the drug hits you in an hour or so. It works like a shock. Everything will be repressed into the unconscious. Oh, I see. Very neat. It will exist in your unconscious, however. Somewhere, because you're the kind of man you are, because living in space has taught you the blessing of feeling free... You'll be able to draw upon your unconscious knowledge when you need to. And when will that be, Mr. Cocteau? That depends on whether you decide to join us or not. Join you in what? I haven't the faintest idea of what you're trying to do. For all I know, you're a bunch of traitors. You know, I've heard this comes the revolution stuff before. My friend, you're woefully ignorant of our aims. As is to be expected. We anticipate no revolution. We print no leaflets, publish no newspaper... And we have no world plan for conquest. The kind of totalitarian mind which subscribes to tight economic systems like the ancient Marxism of the communists is abhorrent to us. We're interested in only one thing. The preservation of the idea of freedom. Our fear is that men will forget what it's like to feel free. Well, how do you expect to accomplish this? Our concepts are being kept alive in only one place in the universe today. Outer space? Exactly. On the frontiers of the universe, where freedom is a condition of life and growth. 
Suppose I join you. How can I help? You're an experienced pilot. We have enough connections to do some plastic surgery on your face and get you a position piloting a spaceship again. You'll remember nothing of your mission. But you will remember that you have been back to Earth what it was like. You'll be able, carefully, of course, to tell people to help keep the idea of freedom alive. Think it over carefully. You have 20 minutes before the drug takes effect. I don't need 20 minutes. I'll do it. Good. In exactly 48 hours, you'll wake up in your hotel bed with a new face, the identity card of a man named Harold Janus. You'll not remember how you got them or why, but you'll know what to do with his identity. He is, or was, master navigator on the Earth-Mars run. Good luck, Mr. Craig. I woke up in the hotel bed, feeling like a man who has hung one on but good. I looked into the mirror and I saw the face of another man. I looked in my wallet and discovered that I was Harold Janus, navigator for Intergalactic, holder of a license for 15 Gs. I wondered where it came from, how I got it, but I asked no questions. This license, this ident card, meant freedom. I walked out of the hotel feeling steady for the first time. I'd gotten my sea legs at last. You have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you Sea Legs, a story from the pages of Galaxy, written by Frank Petrocchi and adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Featured in the cast were William Redfield, James Stevens, Stan Early, Charles Penman, James Dukas, Richard Hamilton, Jack Orison, Jack Grimes, Craig McDonald, Ralph Bell, Kermit Murdoch, and Frederica Chandler. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. X-1 and the story called Sea Legs broadcast 66 years ago this month. It came to you tonight from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Mike Kidd, Kellen Quigley, and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We're going to close this National Maritime Day edition of the big broadcast with a salute to that other force that's part of the Department of the Navy, the United States Marines. In 1944, the popular historian Roger Butterfield published a book called Al Schmidt Marine. It was a true World War II story, based on an article Mr. Butterfield had written for Life magazine. The actor John Garfield was fascinated by the magazine piece, and he worked to bring it to the silver screen. He visited the heroic Al Schmidt and became friendly with him and his family. Sure enough, the following year, just as the war was ending, Warner Brothers released the movie Pride of the Marines, starring Mr. Garfield, Eleanor Parker, and Dane Clark. Before 1945 was out, in fact, 
as it was going out on New Year's Eve, those three actors reprised their roles in a Lux Radio Theater production. It contains a reference to the bonus army of protesting World War I veterans, a mistranslation of the Hebrew and Yiddish phrase Shalom Aleichem, peace be with you, and an interview with the real-life Al Schmidt during one of the intermissions. Incidentally, Albert Maltz, who wrote the screenplay from which this show was adapted, was nominated for an Academy Award for his work. Less than two years later, he was one of the Hollywood Ten, the first writers and directors placed on the infamous blacklist. Oh, and one other note, we'll hear a commercial for Lux Soap that features one Eleanor Broder. She's called a secretary, and that gives us a little insight into the status and struggles of women in the film industry back then. With the job she describes, she'd easily be given a credit nowadays as a producer or assistant to the director, at the very least. From December 31, 1945, and CBS, it's the radio adaptation of Pride of the Marines from the Lux Radio Theater. Lux presents Hollywood. The Lux Radio Theater brings you John Garfield, Eleanor Parker, and Dane Clark in Pride of the Marines. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. While we prepare to usher in the new year, I think it's not only timely but heartening for us to hear the real-life story of a battle-scarred Marine who faces one of the most difficult problems war can leave. But make no mistake, our play tonight from Warner Brothers' Pride of the Marines is not a story of sadness, but a story of the triumph of a great love. It follows closely the life of a real living person, Sergeant Al Schmidt, from my hometown of Philadelphia. The part of Al is played by John Garfield, duplicating his original screen role. Co-starred with John, also from the screencast, are Eleanor Parker and Dane Clark as the sweetheart and friend who stand by Al with understanding and devotion. Tonight, as we look ahead to the new year, may I thank you all for your support during the months past and your friendly letters and suggestions. While Lux Flakes continue to brighten and lighten your daily tasks at home, rest assured that we shall continually strive to bring you the best in radio entertainment in 1946. It's curtain time, and here's Pride of the Marines, starring John Garfield as Al, Eleanor Parker as Ruth, and Dane Clark as Lee. My name is Schmidt, Al Schmidt. Maybe you heard of me, maybe not. Anyhow, what I've got to tell you starts back in 1941 in Philadelphia. I was living at the time, boarding with friends of mine, Jim Merchant and his wife, Ella May. Hey, what's the flowers for, Al? Somebody kicked a bucket? Well, this here's for your wife. Where is she? In the kitchen, cooking. On your anniversary? That's her idea. Hi, Al. Are they for me, those flowers? They're for your hard-working mama, honey. Hey, Ma. Yes? Look what Al's brought you. Hurry up. I look pretty stupid carrying these around. Happy anniversary. The only couple I know who are happy, though married. Well, one of these days you'll be bringing flowers to a wife of your own. I live alone and like it. You live alone and look it. Better get ready for dinner. Yeah. Come on, let's get shaved, Al. 
Okay, honey, let's. Al? Huh? What do you shave for, Al? Oh, to make me look handsome? I think you're handsome already. <laughs> That's nice. Al, do you like girls? I sure do, sister. When did you start liking girls? When I found out they weren't boys. Oh. Mom says she knows lots of legible girls. Yeah, I know. That's why she's always inviting girls here to meet you. I'll tell you a big secret, Loretta. I am going to get married. Honest? Yeah. When? Oh, five or six years. To me? <laughs> well, sure. What do you think? Oh, gee. <laughs> okay, now give me a kiss. Dinner's waiting. Oh, we won't eat till Ruth gets here. Who? Ruth. That's a friend of Mom's. We're having her for dinner. Another one? Where's that razor? I think I'll just cut my throat. Al! No, I guess I won't. If I cut my throat, I wouldn't be able to marry you, would I? Now, don't worry, sugar. We'll take care of this Ruth thing. Did you ring the bell? Yes. Oh, uh, don't the merchants live here? Yeah, they live here. Oh. Your name Ruth? How did you know? What's the difference? Ella is in the kitchen. Sit down. Thank you. They have a lovely home, haven't they? Yeah, I suppose you'd like one for yourself someday. Well, yes, someday. I thought so. Why, look at the flowers. Yeah. So many of them, it's almost like a wedding. A wedding? Oh, boy, that's a hot one. <laughs> well, I'm afraid I don't know. Ruth, I didn't hear you come in. Well, happy anniversary. Thanks. Oh, I see you and Al have met. Yeah, I feel as if I've met her dozens of times. Come on upstairs, Ruth. Jim, Ruth's here. See you in a minute, Ruth. Good. Hey, Al, what do you think? Just one thing. Ella May has got to stop picking out girls for me. Yeah, marrying off guys, it's kind of a disease with her. But this one, Al, I kind of thought you'd like her. She's a terrific bowler. She is, huh? Ella May says she bowls 200. Yeah? Uh -huh. Just wait till I get her on a bowling alley. Just wait. What's the score, Ella May? You've got 220. Uh, Ruth's got 40. Bowls 200, does she? Um, you know, I figured out what's wrong with your game, Ruth. Uh, the alley must be warped. So's your sense of humor. Hey, Al, uh, what do you say we go slop up a few beers? Oh, but Jim, Ruthie wants to get a game going, don't you, Ruthie? Yes, I'd enjoy another game. Well, we might as well run along then. Good night, kids. Have a good time. Good night. Yeah, good night. All right. You know, um, I think there's something wrong with the way I play. You don't mean it. Mm, I'd be terribly grateful if you'd show me. Well, uh, the first thing you do is you've got to bring the ball all the way back. You see, like this. Oh, now I see where all your power comes from. Yeah, yeah, you see, like this. Oh, on that little step you do, that little dance, like... Is that one of your secrets of success? <laughs> well, uh, that's just a little mistake I made. You made a mistake? Are you trying to ride me? Oh, well, now you're angry. I'm not angry. Either put that bowling ball or throw it. I didn't say on my foot. I missed your foot. By a quarter of an inch. How would you feel if I... For the way you've acted tonight, I didn't think you knew what feelings are. Are you trying to make a monkey out of me? It isn't hard. You're not very bright. Is that so? Well, who asked you on this date? You cooked it up with LMA so you can hook yourself a husband. Look out! What are you trying to do? Cripple me? I'd just like to say one word, Mr. Schmidt. As far as I'm concerned, I've spent a dreary evening with an awful drift. Goodbye. Now, wait a minute. Hey, wait. Wait. <laughs> Hope your bus isn't crowded. We would have to work late just when I have a dinner date. Oh, well, have a swell time tonight. And happy birthday. Thanks a lot, Bertie. See you Monday. Hiya, Ruth. Get in. I'll ride you home. Go away. 
But our little boy is sick, Ruth. He keeps crying for you. Stop being a clown and go away. It's all right if you don't love me anymore. But how can you desert an innocent child? Young woman, you ought to be ashamed. Go home to your child. Go on, sister. Go home to your kid. Oh, all right. I'll go. Probably crying its head off. Oh, that's not so bad. He's got two heads. Two heads? Hiya, Ruth. My, but you're a scream. Now, don't get sore. Isn't this better than the bus? Now, why don't you answer the phone? I do, for some people. I've called you five times since we went bowling, and I think your Uncle Ralph is swell, except he, he sounds a little too old for me to date. Oh, try harder. He won't hook you. Look, I'm apologizing, see? How about driving a little faster? It's my birthday, and I've got a dinner date. Well, if that's the way you feel about it, just hang on. You said you were in a hurry. Which house? There, where the car's parked. Oh, that's my date. What time is it? Oh, it's early yet. Ah! Hey, what's the idea? Oh, it was an accident, Harry. He didn't mean to bump in. What's the matter, bud? Didn't you see my car? See it? I hit it, didn't I? You want to make something of it? Oh, Ruth, uh, don't stay out too late, sweetheart. I'll be back at 10.30. Huh? Oh, what makes men do such crazy things? Women. And I hope you have a very happy birthday with him. But, Harry, I... So long, two-timer. Hello, Uncle Ralph. I... This is Uncle Al, sweetheart, and it's 10.30. The nerve. The nerve of you. Happy birthday, Ruth. Can I interest you in a whirlwind courtship? Now, oh, look at you. What girl wants to stay home on her birthday? Sorry, but I'm going to bed. Then Good how... night. Well, then how about celebrating your birthday tomorrow? Something special, huh? Uh, like uh, uh, going to the fights, ice hockey, uh, roller skating. Oh, I get it. You either want to exercise or see other people exercise. No, nah, don't get me wrong, Ruthie. I'll do anything you say, like uh, going hunting. Believe me, there's nothing like it when the weather is cool and crisp. Mm -hmm. Why, I bet you've never been hunting. Okay, we'll leave early in the morning. How's six o'clock? Oh, awful. Good. I'll pick you up at six sharp, Ruthie. Night. <laughs> Boy, that fire sure feels good, don't it? How's the coffee coming? Ready in a minute. Hey, some luck, huh? Look at these pheasants. You're a wonderful shot, Al. Yeah, boy, when I get out in the country like this, I don't know why I'd come back to the city. Why do you? Well, because I'm sitting pretty now. First-class burner at the foundry, making 40 bucks a week, trying hard to spend it all. You want to help me spend it? Easy come, easy go, hmm? You know, you might save some for a rainy day. Oh, there ain't going to be any rainy days. I got it all arranged. Real rugged, aren't you? You know, I like the way you stand up to me. I like the way you laugh at my corny jokes. and I like it when you say you're going to do something and you do it and you don't just make up a lot of silly excuses. Like what? Oh, like uh, going hunting. I didn't think you'd come. And look at me now. Yeah. Look at you now. Ah, that's the second time you've kissed me without warning. You want a warning next time? Like what? Oh, something like, um, hello? Mm, that's a fair enough warning. Hello, Ruth. Hello, Al. Jim, what are you doing to your radio? I'm fixing it. The adjuster case was grounded to the oscillator coil. Well, it's all fixed. Five bucks, it works, too. Oh, I haven't got five bucks. Well, here goes. Listen. Think? Come on, Marconi. Find your daughter. It's time to eat. All right, huh? Hey, Loretta. Ruth. Yes? Uh, Jim and Ella may have picked out a joint for New Year's Eve. 
You want to come? Or should I find some good-looking dame? Suit yourself. Come to think of it, I don't have any other boyfriends anymore. Oh, so you want a new crop of boyfriends. I didn't say I did. But maybe it's a good idea. You know, as soon as I get a little more dough, I'm going up to Canada. Just fishing and hunting. You want to come? Ask me when the time comes. I always told you I was a rolling stone. Sure. Uh-uh. There goes that radio again. Well, it doesn't sound broken. Ladies and gentlemen. You see... A report has just come in that the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. We resume our musical program pending further details momentarily. Where's Pearl Harbor? I don't know. You want to come with me New Year's Eve? Well, I might if you ask me nice. Like this? told me he was going to marry me. I think we're both out of luck, Loretta. Jim, where's Pearl Harbor? Pearl Harbor? Oh, it's down the Jersey coast near Atlantic City someplace. Wait a minute. Wait. We interrupt this program with news of grave importance. Huh? War broke out today in the Pacific. On, Without warning, waves of Japanese planes attacked Hawaii. The United States is at war with Japan. Please stand by. Well, what do you know? Oh, sit down, everybody. The roads is getting cold. Hey, we're at war, honey. The United States is at war. Yes, dear, I know. Now come on and start carving. You gonna be a soldier, Al? Heck no, I'm going to Canada and shoot bears. Oh, Ruth, I hope you two are going with us New Year's Eve. Dear, I forgot to light the candles. Oh, relax, I'll do them. I'm the best little candle lighter in Philly. You know? What? You know, I bet it might be more fun shooting Japs than bears. Ah, you'll never get a chance, kid. The Marines will take care of them. The Marines? The Marines? Yeah. Ah, the whole thing will blow over in a week. No takers, Al. Come on, everybody. Pass your plate. Oh, thanks. Hello? Hello, honey. Say, uh, about New Year's Eve, uh, don't look like I'm going to make it, Ruthie. Oh, fine thing. Hang on, honey. You are now talking to Private Schmidt, U.S. Marines. Oh. <laughs> kind of sudden, huh? Look, let's celebrate tonight, huh? Make up for New Year's, huh? Oh, Al, I, I just don't know what to say. Then think up something, honey, and make it good. I'll pick you up at the usual time. What do you know? I'm a Marine! <laughs> I, uh, I guess Uncle Ralph's asleep, huh? Yes, it's pretty late. I, uh, I don't know whether to ask you to sit down or what. No, no, I, got, I gotta go home and pack, sweetie. The, that train leaves in five hours. Ruthie, I, I want a kiss. I, I want a kiss that'll last me for the duration. You got one like that? I'll do my darndest. Hello, darling. You know, it's exciting going off the wall. Yes, I... Guess if I were a man, I'd be doing the same thing. I'm glad you're not a man. Why? Why do you think? Honey, look, I, uh... There's a lot of things I like to say, but I, I don't know how to say them, so I, I'll just cut it down to goodbye. But I want to see you off at the train. No, you got to get some sleep. I'm not tired, It's Al. better that way, Ruthie. Look, I, I want you to get back into circulation. You don't have to worry about me. Sure, sure. It, it, it isn't as if there's anything set between us. That's right. So... Don't think too much about me, see? There are lots of other guys and... Don't worry about me, Al. Don't worry. Well, uh, goodbye, Ruthie. Al, goodbye. Coffee? Donut? Cup of coffee? Coffee? How about you, soldier? Cup of coffee? Huh? No, no, thanks. All alone? So what? Well, nothing, but we'll look around you. Everybody kissing his girl goodbye, and mothers and fathers, and... Well, it's the kind of thing you read about, isn't it? Well, I'd sooner read about it, see? 
I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bother you. Oh, you didn't bother me. It's just that... Wait a minute. Huh? Excuse me, sister. Excuse me. Don't turn away, Ruthie. I spotted you. I could spot you a mile off. So you came to the station anyway. Are you sore, Al? Sure, I'm sore. You were just going to stand here and let me get on the train without saying a word. I just wanted to see you, Al. I, I might have called to you at the last Limited, minute. Leaving on track number two for Wilmington. We only got a minute, Ruthie. Listen, you love me? Yes. Well, me too, you. And I don't want you doing what I said about going out with other guys. I guess I wouldn't have anywhere. Will you wait for me, Ruthie? You'll have to pry me loose from the sticking kind. I want one last look at that sweet face you got. Don't change the way you look, will you? Oh, take care of yourself, darling, and don't be a hero or anything. Honey, I'm going to wrap myself in cellophane. I got a reason now. I guess I... I get a, I got to get on that train now. Oh, here, I, I was going to give you this at the house. Al, but... the train's starting. Hurry, you can mail it to me. No, no, here, I want you to have it now. Goodbye, honey. Goodbye, Al. That's kind of big. If you don't like it, throw it away. Goodbye, Ruthie. I even like your hat. A ring. An engagement ring. Oh, Al, it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful ring in the world. Al, Al. Something the matter, lady? Did you miss somebody? No, no. But I'm sure going to. In just a moment, you'll hear Act Two of Pride of the Marines, starring John Garfield. Next to be seen in Warner Brothers' Nobody Lives Forever. Back of most men in Hollywood is usually a very efficient secretary who smooths the wheels of production. Our guest tonight is Miss Eleanor Broder, secretary to Mitchell Lyson, director of Paramount's new and beautiful production, Kitty. How do you like being secretary to a director, Miss Broder? Very much. It's a chance to get a liberal education and get paid for acquiring it. Hmm, very gratifying. I hope my secretary is listening in. You might call me uh, chairman of the worrying committee. As you know, Mr. Keeley, if Mr. Lyson wants three pink elephants or something equally simple, he just tells me, and from then on, I worry about getting them. And like a good secretary, I'm sure you keep on worrying after the picture is in production. Yes, I double for audience reaction. I can't help laughing and crying and suffering right along with the actors. I nearly ruined my wardrobe when Olivia de Havilland was making to each his own. How was that? Well, I'd get so interested in the story, I'd lean against anything or sit down anywhere without thinking. And they don't dust those sets every morning. <laughs> Sounds like a job, job for Lux, eh, John? What do you say, Miss Broder? Certainly was. I like wearing washable dresses, so I just took them home and luxed them. With good results, I trust. Of course, Mr. Kennedy. Lux just floated that dust right out and left the color in. After all, Mr. Kennedy, the studios themselves use Lux for all their washables, and some of them are really precious. That's praise from the top, Miss Broder. You'll be interested to know that actual tests confirm the studio's good judgment and yours. Colors stay lovely up to three times longer with Lux Care. Strong soap, hot water, and rough handling soon fade colors, leave fabrics old-looking. Lux is so thrifty, it saves on cleaning bills. That's right. It takes less than a penny to Lux address. So, girls who want to be thrifty, Lux everything safe in water. Here's Mr. Keeley with Act Two. We continue with Pride of the Marines, starring John Garfield as Al, Eleanor Parker as Ruth, and Dane Clark as Lee. <laughs> I didn't get many letters from Al. He wasn't much good at letter writing. But finally, in July, a card came. It didn't say much, only that Private Schmidt had arrived safely at his destination. 
I didn't know then that that destination meant Guadalcanal. They did it last night, got four of our cruises. Yeah, all they got to do is sit out there and spit at us. I'm going to dig this foxhole so deep it'll be just short of desertion. No sleep, no chow, no smokes, no mail, not enough planes, not enough Navy, not enough doctors. You know something, Al? We've been here two weeks. It's our anniversary. Remind me later. I'll bake a cake. Oh. Hey, here comes the corporal. Hiya, Diamond. What's the Hi, matter? Lee. You guys? Oh, hello, corporal. What do you mean? Oh. What's the matter? How many times you got to be told not to gang up like this? Oh. Hey, it's uh, time for us to relieve those guys at the river, ain't it? Yeah, it'll be dark soon. Just you and me and Al? That's right. Well, let's go. Let's make a run for it. What's the matter? You're crazy? It's nice and quiet now, ain't it? But just show that pretty kisser of yours and see what happens. They'll cut you in two. Then the two of us would go. Oh, Legs right. running one way, torso the other. Very funny. Come on, Court. Yeah, see you guys. Hey, what's the matter with those guys we just relieved? Don't they ever learn nothing? What's the beat, Johnny? For our machine gun, look. They didn't change the bolt. It's still bird. Well, maybe there's a spare in the parts box. Check the water hose, Al. Water hose is clear. Yeah, no extra bolt in here. Fine. Al, what about the ready boxes? Tell you in a minute. Johnny, get a line in that bush across the river. Which one? Right there, right there. Come on, the light's failing. Left, 920. Yeah? Down six mils. Six mils left. Oh, why don't those guys learn how to make up a range card? Hey, I guess those are just birds, huh, Al? Yeah, they sound like birds. Every night it's the same thing. Birds got no right being up at night. They used to go hunting birds back in Pennsylvania. Listen, listen. They may try to cross tonight, see? So if they do, I figure they'll cross at the sandbar. That's right in front of us. Yeah, right in front of us. I got a hunch this here machine gun is going to get a workout tonight. Yeah, well, let them come. This is their chance. It'll come sooner or later. I'll take sooner. I'll take later. You know, maybe a, maybe a ship will come in tomorrow with some mail on it. Why is it that everything good is always going to happen tomorrow? What's the matter? What you looking at? Just across the river. Where? Uh, nothing there. Oh. Okay, if I flop, Lee. Okay. Keep your eyes open, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. anything? No, it's as quiet as a graveyard. Do you have to use that word? I thought you were sleeping. Too quiet to sleep. What's the use of... Uh, uh-oh. Hey. Can you see him? Can you see any of them? No, no, that's their cheer. They're working up their nerve. It's getting closer, Lee. I know, I know. So what? Here it comes. Keep down, keep down. We won't open up until the last second. All they got to do is wait across. Well, they'll hit him from the side. Now, wait a minute. I think they're crossing. Now, Lee. Now. Oh, no, wait. Wait, and lay it across the sandbar, Johnny. Yeah, that's them. They're coming up. Wait. Wait. I can hear them in the water. Wait. Now. Now. Fire. Fire. Three to three. Left, left. Now, watch that ammo. I got it. Tear him down. Out of boy. Tear him down. Kid, one big hole. Put it on sticky travel. Come on. Get him. Get him. Get him. Get him. Come on, will you load up, load up, they'll be back. We're loading as fast as we can. Lee. There they are, Johnny, there, there, they crossed Where? over. They're coming at us, will you fire, fire? Oh, oh, oh. Johnny, he's Matt. hit. He's hit, Johnny's hit. I'll take over, Al, I'll feed, I'll feed. Come on, you slimy pigs, come on again. Will you lay off the door, I'm in his Johnny. He's dead. Right through the fart, he's dead. You stinking yellow belly's the best guy in the world. Watch it, watch it, Al, don't get trigger happy, watch it. What's the matter? You want to... hit? Oh. Al, I can't move. Where are you hit? Where? Arm. 
The shoulder. Come on, get back, Al. Watch him. Watch him. First. We'll haul him, Lee. We'll haul him. First. Come on, just try to get through. Just Short. try to get through. Just try. You die. You die. dirty skinny. Why can't I shut you up? Come on. I'll take you with a hammer and punch. Now, now from the side, I hear something. Where? 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 Where the bushes. There's a chap. He's crawling. But he died. Look out, Al. Look out. Al. Al. My face. I, I can't see. I can't see. Al, get down. When you get down... I can't see. Al. Al, what are you doing? What do you want with your 45? Oh, no, no. Don't do it, Al. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't shoot yourself. We'll get help soon. Don't, Al. Don't. Shoot myself. Just, just tell me where they are. Tell me where they're coming from. I'll shoot them. Tell me where they are, Lee. Tell me where they are. Tell me. I didn't hear from Al for a long time, but I thought of him every day and wondered and wondered. And then it was at the office a phone call came. It was my uncle. It's a letter, Ruth. It just came. From Al? No, no, the Naval Hospital in San Diego. Hospital? Yes. Al's there, Ruth. He can't write, but he's okay. Oh, he's safe. Oh, thank God. Thank God. I sure got Ruthie trained, huh, Miss Pfeiffer? A letter from her every day. Yes, and you should be ashamed of yourself. This is a fine letter you've just dictated. It's going to run all of eight lines. Ah, you Red Cross dame's got other things to do. Go on, type it up. Oh, tell us something, Al. About yourself, your friends here at the hospital. I've done that. By now she knows Lee Diamond as good as me. There's one thing you haven't told her? No. She'll have to know sometime. Tomorrow I can tell her, maybe. After the doctor takes off the bandages. Al, the doctors didn't promise you'd see. Those medics never promise anything. Well, I'll go type your letter. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can add this. Just say this. Uh, pretty soon I'll be coming home, Ruthie. Gosh, sweetheart, I can hardly wait to see you. I, uh, I, uh... Just make believe I'm a typewriter, Al. Don't be embarrassed. I, uh, I never told you what I feel like when you're in my arms. With that funny, kind of wonderful light in your eyes. Like you did on that... Railroad station platform the day I left. Say what you're thinking, Al. Say it. Oh, just say, uh, lots of love, Al. You know, that's the longest letter I ever wrote in my life. <laughs> I'll bet it is. Here, here, here's a picture of her, Miss Pfeiffer. See? Ain't that a nice face, though? Yes, Al. A man could lean on a girl like that. I don't lean on anyone. When these bandages come off, you'll see a guy that leans on nobody. You just watch me. Tomorrow I'll write Ruthie a... That doggone sluttish... That... What the heck with that? I'll phone her. That's what I'll do. I'll phone him. Well, what are you waiting for, Doc? Why don't you say something? I'll take it easy, Al. I'm taking it easy, sir. You think I don't know I've been hurting my eyes? Why, I didn't expect to be wearing glasses for the rest of my life. Four-eyed Schmidt. But I don't mind that, sir. I don't mind glasses. I've got a flashlight, Al. I'm going to bring it around toward your face. Now, the first time you see the light, you holler. I'll holler. I'll holler so loud my girl will hear me in Philadelphia. You ready? Turn it on. I want to see stars and angels and Ruth. Come on. Let me see the light. Bring it closer. You see anything? Yeah. Yeah. Like a locomotive headlight. Way off in the fog. 
Bring it closer. Please. Closer. Al, the light is full in your eyes. It's right in front of you. No. I can't be blind. Please, sir, please. You got ways of fixing guys up. I tried my best. I fought. I'm not asking for so much. Well, this examination isn't final, Al. Besides, you'll probably need another operation. When? When? Six months, maybe a year. Al, I'm going to give you a card. A card that'll teach you to read with your fingers. That's for blind people. I don't want any of that stuff. I want to stand on my own. Al, people get the wrong idea about blindness. A blind man isn't helpless. He just has to do things differently. That's all. Al, are you listening to me? No. I'm not listening. Why don't God just strike me dead? Look, uh, I want to get this over with quick, Miss Pfeiffer. You got your pencil? Al, what harm would it do to wait another week or so? You heard what the doctor said. I made up my mind. What about giving Ruth a chance to decide? Decide what? How to ruin her life? Well, tell her the truth. Find out what she wants. Sure, tell her the truth. So she'll pity me. I'm leaving pity out of this. Aren't you leaving love out of it, too? She'll need another guy. She'll fall in love. You're going to write this letter, or I have to ask Lee Diamond to do it. Go ahead. Dear Ruth, I, uh, I know this is going to be kind of a surprise to you, but I, I'm going to give it to you straight. I'm not coming back to Philly. Not now, not ever. And about getting married, well, it just ain't up my alley, that's all. I hope you'll be happy, and I hope you'll find a new boyfriend real soon. Yours, Al Schmidt. That's all, Miss Pfeiffer. Short and sweet. And you can do me a big favor. Get it in the mail right away. Hello? Miss Ruth Hartley, please. This is Miss Hartley. On your call to San Diego. Yes? Private Schmidt cannot come to the phone. Miss Virginia Pfeiffer of the Red Cross wants to know if she may accept your call. Oh, yes, yes. Go ahead, San Diego. Hello, Ruth? Yes, Miss Pfeiffer. I just got Al's letter. Ruth, please try to understand. He isn't breaking with you because he doesn't love you. But then why? Ruth, Al has lost the sight of one eye and may never regain the sight in the other. That's why he broke with you. He's afraid of becoming a burden. Do you understand now? Hello? Hello? Yes, I understand. Ruth, do you still love him? Do you want him? I mean, as a husband. Oh, yes, yes, I do. But he may be totally blind for the rest of his life. What of it? I didn't fall in love with his eyes. I fell in love with him. That hasn't changed just because something's happened to his eyes. Then keep writing to him, Ruth. And try not to mind if he doesn't answer. Just be patient. We have a pretty big job ahead of us. But we can do it. I'm so grateful to you for everything. I guess Al still doesn't know what a wonderful girl he has. Goodbye, Ruth. Try not to worry. <laughs> Hey, any of you birds here talk about going home for Christmas? Yeah, I wish I could believe it. Well, I heard everybody who's fit goes home, walking cases too. That leaves me out. Me too. You're a walking case, Al. Yeah, except I got no place to go, see? What's the first thing you're going to do when you get home, Irish? Get myself a nice little street corner for my new business. Hey, look who's coming. Hi there, Virginia. Hi, Hi, Come on in. Yeah, Irish has been telling us about his new business. Yeah, it's on a corner. Oh, a bank or a saloon. Which is it, Irish? <laughs> yeah, not even close. Twice in his life, my old man got his name in the paper, see? The first time in 1917, he was the first to enlist in Milwaukee. The second time in 1930, he was the first bet to sell unemployed apples. 
Any of you guys want a piece of my street corner? I ain't right, but I'm honest. Count me in, Irish and Schmidt, apples and shoelaces. We ought to do all right. What's the matter with you guys? Think no one's learned anything since 1930? Think everybody's had their eyes shut and their brains in cold storage? I'll tell you guys something funny. I'm scared, see? And if a man come along, anybody, and told me I'd have a decent job, I'd go down on my knees and wash his feet. What about the G.I. Bill of Rights? They guarantee your old job. How about that? Yeah, guarantee your job. Well, I wrote for my old job, and you know what the boss wrote back? He's in a new business. You can't get your old job back if it just don't exist, can you? Well, that's got to be considered. Considered? How long did we get to consider it? Guadalcanal. They said, get going, and we went. Well, that's okay. Except I want some considering now. I got a wife. I want a supporter. Can I put my two cents worth in, gentlemen? You boys are all jumpy. Nobody can blame you. You're shut off here, and sometimes it must seem as if nobody cares. Who does? People care. Civilians aren't strange animals. They're your own fathers and mothers and wives, your girls and friends. And if they can help it, you're not going to be let down. So they send some guys back to college, get some guys jobs. So maybe we'll even have prosperity while we catch up on the things the poor civilians had to go without. But what happens after a couple of years? Answer me that. A bonus march. How about that, huh? A bonus march. <laughs> okay, Al, okay. Now you listen. All of you listen. One happy afternoon when God was feeling kind of good, he, he sat down and he thought of a rich, beautiful country. And he named it the USA, all of it, Al. The hills, the rivers, the lands, the whole works. Don't tell me we can't make it work in peace like we do in war. Don't tell me we can't pull together. Don't you see it, guys? Can't you see it? You asking me? I... Yeah? Yeah, I'm asking you like everybody else. I don't see any of those things you said God made. I don't see a thing. Well, I didn't mean it that way, Al. I... No, you didn't. But it's the only way I heard it. So long, you guys. I got a letter to write. Come on, Al. I'll help you. It's the Santa Claus. Dear Santa, I'd like a shiny tin cup for Christmas. Oh, and a few pencils if you can spare. Al, can I talk to you, Al? What's on your mind? You. Al, suppose the worst happens to you. Suppose you never get your sight back. There's still an awful lot left. Don't you see, Al, blind or not, once you get over your fear of being helpless, the whole world is wide open to you. What do you worry about? A couple of months from now, I'll be able to see you all right. I, I hope so. I just thought I'd tell you what was on my mind. Yeah, thanks. Oh, uh, excuse me, is that Private Schmidt? Uh, yeah. Message from the captain. Captain wants to see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. I'll see that he's there. Thank you, miss. The old man, huh? Now what have I done? Schmidt. Yes, sir. Schmidt, I have great news. You ought to receive the Navy Cross. Congratulations. Navy Cross? Well, never in all my born days. The Navy Cross. Corporal Diamond's getting one, too. Although the ceremonies won't be held in the same place. Your hometown is quite proud of you, Schmidt. So the Navy's decided that you'll get your award at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Corporal Diamond will be on the train with you and effect your transfer to the Naval Hospital. You'll leave tomorrow. Couldn't ask for a better Christmas present than that, could you? I, uh, I gotta go back there? It's your hometown. Why not? But it isn't my home, sir. I'm going to move. But you've got a girl in Philadelphia, haven't you? No, sir. She and I are all washed up. I got nobody. I think I know what's on your mind, Schmidt. Believe me, the people who knew you before, you mean just as much to them now as you ever did. And a lot more. Until you learn that, how are you going to make any progress? I'm making progress, sir. I'm trading a couple of eyes for a ribbon on my chest. Now I'm going home so people can stare at me. That's fine progress. You're under orders, Schmidt. And you're going back. Goodbye, my son. And good luck. Thank you. 
Lee's seeing about the tickets, Al. He'll be right back. Oh, Ginny, I've been carrying a beef inside of me, but it hasn't been against you. You're great. I'm glad you think so, Al. Then will you do me a favor? Send a telegram to Ruthie. Ask her, ask her to meet me at the station in Philly, will you? Al. Oh, that's wonderful. No, it's not for the reason you think. I just want to get things straightened out once and for all. Okay, Al. Tickets all set. Well, keep your powder dry, Virginia. And thanks for everything. Goodbye, Lee. Good luck. You know, some of these days I'm going to come back and find out what you really look like. I'll be an awful disappointment to you. Ah, uh, no, you won't. You're tops. Goodbye. Just don't stop fighting, Al. Don't. So long, Virginia. I'm sorry, but would you... Would you mind reading that back to me? Yes, miss. The telegram is from San Diego. It says, Al arriving 30th Street Station, 2 p.m. Thursday. I have done all I can. The rest is up to you. It's signed, Virginia. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, dear God. He's got to come home where he belongs. He's got to know he's wanted. Here's Act Three of Pride of the Marines with John Garfield as Al, Eleanor Parker as Ruth, and Dane Clark as Lee. It's late at night, and as their train roars eastward, Al Schmidt and Lee Diamond look through the window of their compartment at the shadowy, snow-covered countryside that sweeps by. I keep looking through the window, like I could see something. Uh, it's pretty late, Al. You want to go to bed? Huh? No, no, I feel kind of jumpy. Jumpy? I've been thinking, that telegram I sent Ruth, about her meeting me tomorrow. Yeah? Well, it's crazy. What's the sense of seeing Ruth, just to break up with her? Uh, Lee, you sent another telegram. Tell her not to come. No, wait a minute. That's not fair. You're going to see her. Lee, don't make me fight you. But you promised, Al. You and me, we don't have to be polite to each other. What does welcome home mean to a blind man? Maybe more than to anyone else. You're going to send that wire? Yeah, I'll send a wire if you want me to, but first I want to tell you something. Al, back there on the canal after you got that grenade in your face, you remember what you did? You pulled your 45 and I thought you meant to kill yourself, but you kept yelling out, tell me where they are, Lee, tell me where they are and I'll shoot them. And I thought to myself, that guy Schmidt's got more guts than any man alive. So what? So I was wrong, Al. I don't think you have any guts. I think you're kind of yeller. You haven't got guts enough to see Ruth. Shut up. You didn't listen to Marines because you had any sense. You didn't care about that this was the USA and you lived in it. You were just a hopped-up guy looking for excitement. That's a lie, and you're a stinking liar. All right, then ask yourself a question. Would you do it all over again? If you knew you was going to be blind, would you do it over again? Oh, Al. Al, don't you think I'd crawl on my hands and knees to a doctor if he could take an eye out of my head and put it into yours? But he can't, Al. He can't. I know it's a stinking war, but it's got to be one. And you're one of the guys who lost some chips in the winning. Everybody's got problems, Al, everybody. What problems have you got? Your wife don't have to turn over on her inside when she sees you. When you go for a job, there ain't anybody going to say we got no use for ex-heroes like you. That's what you think. Sure, there'll be guys who won't hire you even when they know you can handle a job. But there's guys who won't hire me because my name is Diamond instead of Jones. Don't you see what I mean? You and me, we need the same kind of a world. We need a country to live in where nobody gets booted around for any reason. I'm all mixed up. Mixed up and scared. Dragging at the heels in yellow. Oh, no, no, no. Wait a minute. You're not yellow. But that girl loves you, Al. 
You two can make out. She's the real good. Okay, okay. Didn't what I say mean anything? Yeah, but we still send that wire. All right, Al. I'll send it. Well, this is it, Al. We're coming into the station. It's good we're late. Ruth got that wire then for sure. Yeah. You know, it's too bad we can't get those Navy crosses together. Yeah. Say, if you plan to come to the hospital with me, forget it. Your wife's sitting in New York biting the fingernails. Oh, that's all right. The trains to New York run pretty often. Ah, just stick me in a cab. Well, let's get off. Hang on. Okay. Boy, it sure smells like Philly. Say, uh, you don't see Ruth around, do you, huh? No, Al. I don't see Ruth anywhere. That's fine. Swell. Now that's off my mind. Uh, look, Al, if I'm not going to take you to the hospital, I've got to find out about a train. Yeah, sure. So do you mind waiting here? Go on, go ahead. I'll be right back. Excuse me. Yes? I recognize you from Al's snapshot. You're Ruth, aren't you? Yes. I'm Lee Diamond. Didn't you get the telegram? I had to come anyway. Oh, Lee, please help me. I have to get Al back among his friends where he lived. He's got to know... Look, he's pretty set on not going, Ruth. Where are you taking him now? Navy Hospital. He's got to come home first. Look, I have a car outside. Couldn't you lie to him? Tell him, tell him it's a Navy car or something. Oh, I don't know. It's... it's... Well, I want one chance, Lee. Won't you give it to me? I'll... Well, I'll see what I can do. Look, you walk just ahead of us at the car. Thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't be doing this, Al, except I can get a train for New York in ten minutes. Oh, that's swell. Well, there's a Navy car... And hey, say, there's a good-looking wave in there ready to drive to the hospital. A wave? Say, that's class, huh? Don't step out of line. She's a Louie. Well, I'm going to miss you, you old ball of fire. Yeah. Say, um, what were them old Hebrew words you told me? <laughs> Shalom Aleichem. Good luck. Yeah. Well, uh, Shalom Aleichem, kid. That goes double for you, Al. Okay, Lieutenant. I'll write you, Al. Thanks. So long, Lee. So long. You hear those bells, Lieutenant? That's from Independence Hall. <laughs> I used to eat by that bell. Somehow, whenever it struck 12 o'clock, I got hungry. Out on the canal, I remember that bell whenever I got hungry. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, good day for hunting, huh? Nice and cold. Ever go hunting? Uh-huh. Couldn't hit the broadside of a barn right now. Got eye trouble. Uh, this it? Is this the hospital? Uh-huh. It's okay. Uh, just tell me where the steps are. Yes. <laughs> you know, I used to count steps when I was a kid. Now I'm, I'm back at it again. Now. One. Two, three, four, five. Any more? Uh-huh. Six, seven, eight. Wait a minute. There's a, there's a post here for the railing. Yeah, it's here. This isn't any hospital. I... I... Ruth. You're home, Al. Please forgive me. I had to. But why? Why? It's no good. It's the day before Christmas. It won't work. I'm not going in. Look, if you and I are finished, all right. But why can't you stay to a Christmas party with your friends? Al! Al! Oh, Al! 
Oh, how are you, Loretta? Oh, I read all about you in the papers. You killed 200 Japs, didn't you, Al? Well, so they tell me. Ma, Al's home, he's home! Al, what's it like when you can't see, Al? Is it like being in a dark room? Yeah, that's it. Al, oh, it's so good to see you. Oh, hello, Ella May. Well, don't I get a kiss? Just so long Jim don't catch us. <laughs> Say, where is he? Well, he'll be home any minute. Now, you just make yourself right at home again. Loretta, come with me. Ruth, you and Al go in, in there and sit down. Sofa still in the same place? Everything's just the same, Al. Look at me. I made it. Didn't bump into anything. You're looking fine, Al. How about you? Why, oh, I, I look the same, I guess. We're awfully proud of you, Al. Uh, Cocktails, Al. We're being very fancy in your honor. Cocktails, eh? Well, that's class, all right. Hey, there's Daddy's car. Dad's home. Hi, honey. Is he here yet? He just came. Daddy's in the sitting room. Jim? Al, you no good Marine. Boy, it's good to see you. Me too. Here's your drink, Al. There's none for you, Jim, till you wash up. And hurry. Dinner's about ready. See that, Al? Still a hand <laughs> Sure sounds like it. We have a super Christmas tree, Al. It's right there in the middle of the room. Swell. You want me to tell you what's on it? No. Never well, mind. There's a great big star on top. I don't want to hear about it. Al. Oh, honey, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just kind of tired, that's all. It, it's a nice tree, Lots of colored lights. Sure, honey, sure. In a minute, you can tell me all about it, huh? Your old room's already, Al. Got new wallpaper. Well, sorry, Jim. I'm, I'm going to Chicago to live with my brother. Oh. oh, I didn't know that. Well, uh, I'll see you in a minute, huh? But, Al, I thought you were going to stay here and marry Ruth. Al, you're not different, are you? Of course he isn't. I'm a little different, I suppose. No, you're not. I can't see Loretta's Christmas tree, can I? I can't see you. Doesn't that make me different? I don't mean your eyes. I mean you. And I think you're just the same, I can tell. Thanks. Okay, kids, come and get it. Dining room still in the same place? Straight ahead, Al. Watch me make this on my own. You see? Right in my old place. There. <laughs> I bet you didn't remember to light the candles, did you, Alamay? Oh, dear, of course not. <laughs> Here you are. Remember me? The best little candle lighter in Philadelphia. Al, you did it. <laughs> I remembered. I remembered where they always were. Say, uh, Al, there's a blind fellow working at our factory now. Loretta, stop reaching for things. Haven't you got a tongue? Sure, Mom, but my arm's longer. This, uh, this blind fellow, uh, he went to a school. Uh, how does he get to the plant? By bus. Somebody takes him, huh? No, 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 no. He goes by himself. Al, your old boss says if you go to that school, you can have your old job back anytime. He did, huh? Yes, he said they'd be proud to have you. Well, tell him I'm sorry. It just doesn't fit in with my plans. Well, uh, what do you say we tear into this turkey, huh? Sure smells good. Yes, sir, sure smells good. So they left us alone, huh? Yes, Al. Where'd they say they went? They took Loretta to see her girlfriend. She's got a present for her. Ruthie, while they're gone, right now I, I want you to take me to the hospital. But, Al, you said I you... told them I'd stay because I didn't want any arguments. Now I want to go. Al, I want one fair chance to talk to you, and you've got to give it to There's me. There's nothing you can say I ain't said to myself a thousand times. You don't know what I want to say. Don't pull any tears on me. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. I'm not pulling any tears. You didn't want to see me because you love me. Ruth, Ruth, I'm helpless. I'd be a drag on you all my life. Why don't you let me decide that? Because I'm nobody's lapdog, that's why. You think I want to live out my life knowing every day of the year you married me out of pity? I got too much pride for that. Pride? You haven't got enough pride to face the truth. You want to be lonely. Why, you haven't got the pride to accept being blind like a man. Get me out of here. I won't. You're going to stay here and listen to me. That's fine. That's great. But you missed one car, and I may be blind, but I know where the phone is in this house. I'm calling a cab. Al, look out! 
Christmas tree. Loretta's Christmas tree. Oh, Al, don't be hurt. I gotta get out of here. Get a chair, please. If you go now, you'll leave me to stumble all through my life the way you just did. I don't pity you, Al. I love you. Suppose there never was a war, darling. What if we were married and one day I got hit by a car and was left a cripple? Would you walk out on me? Oh, darling, I need you. Sure, you'll need me too, but what's wrong with two people needing each other? Al, I, I don't know what I'll do if you leave me now. I need you too much. Ruthie, don't. I, I don't want to make you cry. It's, it's just that I was a, an ordinary guy before, and I wasn't with you then, and now I'm, I'm less than an ordinary guy. I can't see. Less than ordinary? Oh, sweetheart, don't you realize that every single man who's fought is no longer ordinary? Don't you realize that millions of people were looking the Guadalcanal every day while you were fighting there? They were. Every civilized person in the world, I guess. And it wasn't any ordinary guy who kept the Japs back that night. It was one of the most extraordinary fellas in the world. You, Al Schmidt. Ruthie. Darling, Ruthie. name of the President of the United States, the Commander of the South Pacific Area and South Pacific Force, takes pleasure in presenting the Navy Cross to Private Albert A. Schmidt, United States Marine Corps Reserve, for extraordinary heroism in the action against a strong Japanese landing force in the Solomon Islands on August 21st, 1942. Under greatest difficulties, the enemy was met and repulsed. In the action, Schmidt was seriously wounded. His courage and fortitude contributed largely to the defeat of the enemy. W.F. Halsey, Admiral, U.S. Navy. I congratulate you, Schmidt. I'm mighty proud, sir. The honor guard will parade now. Yes, sir. Oh, Al, it was just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, how do we get out of here? This way, Al. Now, let's not walk. Let's take a chair. That one over there, with the red top. How do you know it's red? It's uh, kind of fuzzy, but uh, it's red, isn't it? Yes, darling, it is red. Now, look, honey, don't get your hopes up. That doesn't mean I'm going to see you again. Whichever way it is, we'll do it together. Where to, folks? Home. We're going home. Our stars will return in a moment to welcome Al Schmidt in person to our microphone. Here's Mr. Keeley at the microphone. I don't know of any handsomer way of greeting the new year than tonight's inspiring performance by John Garfield, Eleanor Parker, and Dane Clark. Thanks, Bill, and I don't know of any role in pictures I'd have rather played. I think I feel the same way. Did you know Ruth Hartley in real life, Eleanor? Yes. Johnny and I both went to Philadelphia when Mrs. Schmidt was awarded a citation as Mrs. G.I. How about you, Dane? Did you ever know Al Schmidt? Not in real life, Bill, but after playing the picture, I certainly feel as if I knew him well. Well, I know you're anxious to hear from Al, and here he is to talk to us from New York City. Al Schmidt in person. Thank you, Colonel Keeley. And it's great to talk to another Philadelphian. And also Eleanor Parker, 
Dane Clark, and John Garfield. Hiya, Johnny. Hi, Al. How'd you like the show? Great. Hey, you're better Schmidt than Schmidt is. <laughs> <laughs> they don't uh, come better than the real thing, Al. Tell us, how are things going for you? Just fine. Ruth and I and our little son are looking forward to a great new year. And well, from here, it looks pretty good. It's great to hear you say that, Al. Some people are almost afraid to look ahead these days. Well, I'm not afraid to look ahead, Colonel. And as for the future, I'm putting everything I have into saving bonds and stamps. Well, that's the best investment in the future that I know, Al. Right, Colonel. Where else can you get $4 for every three that you put in and give your family security and practically everything you want them to have? And if your audience tonight are making New Year's resolutions, tell them to suck every penny they can into saving bonds. Al, you couldn't have left us with a better New Year's thought. Thank you, Al Schmidt, and from all of us, our heartiest wishes for the future. Thank you, Colonel Keeley, and good night. Good night. Good night, and happy 1946. In a short time, we welcome in the new year. What it holds for us and for the world, no one can tell. But this we know. There is in our hands today the greatest power ever made available to man. Whether that power will be used for good or evil is our unavoidable responsibility. There can be no temporizing with the future and no compromising with the past. A new world must come from this responsibility, a world knit into one common brotherhood of man, dedicated in complete sincerity to tolerance and peace under God. Our sponsors, the makers of Lux Flakes and Lux Toilet Soap, join me in sending you our heartiest wishes for the new year and invite you to be with us again next Monday evening when the Lux Radio Theater presents Van Johnson, Elizabeth Scott, and Don DeFore in You Came Along. This is William Keeley saying goodnight to you from Hollywood. Dane Clark will next be seen in Warner Brothers' Stolen Life. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. Tune in again next Monday night to hear You Came Along with Van Johnson, Elizabeth Scott, and Don DeFore. The Lux Radio Theater New Year's Eve 1945 production of Pride of the Marines, bringing us almost to the end of this National Maritime Day celebration here on the big broadcast tonight. We're going to close by marking the birthday earlier this month of one of the giants of jazz music, happily still with us at 85, and in fact, on tour in Europe right now, having celebrated his birthday with a Carnegie Hall concert a couple of weeks ago. He's appeared on more recordings than any other bassist in jazz history, most notably as the leader of his own groups and also as Checkpoint Charlie, as he was nicknamed, in the famous Miles Davis Quintet of the mid-1960s with Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Tony Williams. Just last month, he won his fourth Grammy Award. Let's finish with a recording he made for Blue Note Records in New York City on April 6, 2001. Accompanied by the late pianist Sir Roland Hanna, it's jazz master Ron Carter with the Hoagy Carmichael classic, the title tune from Mr. Carter's album, Stardust. 
For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog, Kellen Quigley, and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.